there's only one snack that can make me feel like I'm having the true movie theater experience, and that's popcorn. When my mom and I hang in for a girl's night, we have to get our fix, and that's where Kelly's Killer Popcorn comes in. They're a small batch gourmet popcorn company, and believe me, one bite and you'll be hooked. Made in Austin, Texas, this family-owned business has tons of flavors. My mom loves their salted agave caramel, while I have a hard time picking between black pepper or dill pickle. Hmm, maybe I'll just mix the bags together. Oh, and when my dad and brother crash our girls' night, you know that spicy nacho popcorn is coming out. Every flavor is popped in 100% real butter and is whole grain and gluten-free. Which flavor will you be choosing? Head on over to kellyskillerpopcorn.com to indulge yourself in some scary good gourmet popcorn. And make sure to tag them on Instagram at kellyskillerpopcorn so that they can see what movie you're pairing with their flavors. That's kellyskillerpopcorn.com for American-made, small-batch, delicious popcorn. I might be vegetarian, but that doesn't mean I can't enjoy a good spice rub. My favorite place to get them is Smoked Bros, a veteran-owned and operated business that sells premium handcrafted dry rubs, spice blends, and seasonings. Guys, you can even put it on your popcorn. My favorites are Honey Badger, because he doesn't give a bleep, and Jelly and Peanut Flavor Topping, because mm, 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 some things just taste better together. The website even has recipes, so go check out smokedbros.com to support a veteran-owned and operated business and fill your cabinet with delicious flavor. On this episode of the Video Archives podcast, Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery enter the world of fashion with Lamont Johnson's Revenge-O-Matic lipstick. A fashion model is brutally raped by her kid sister's music teacher. When she takes him to court, she finds that she will have to take justice into her own hands. Roger and Quentin discuss the genius of casting real-life sisters Margot and Muriel Hemingway, the intensity a score can bring to a film, and kindly remind us all that lipstick isn't always an invitation to kiss. Next, Quentin and Roger jump into the ring with Carl Reiner's studio comedy, The One and Only. Andy Schmidt is a larger-than-life college student with dreams of becoming an actor. But when he finally makes it to New York, he finds that no one respects his talent. That is, until he accidentally invents show wrestling. Listen as Quentin and Roger quote memorable lines from the film, discuss standout performances from Henry Winkler and Kim Darby, and reveal what it's really like to be an outsider in the ring, waiting to hear the applause. Lastly, we wade into the canals of Venice Beach to find the monster that is Slithis, or Spawn of the Slithis, depending on who you ask. In this 1978 love letter to the city of Venice Beach, a nuclear leak has created a sea monster who terrorizes pets, winos, and hippies, leading a high school journalism teacher to solve the mystery of Slithis. Roger and Quentin talk about the importance of film as a historical time capsule and the art of filling your world with unique characters. I'm your girl, Gala Avery, and joining us now, here's Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery. Thanks a lot for that wonderful intro, Gala. I really appreciate it. Okay, let's kill the Bakalov. And welcome, everybody, to the Video Archives podcast. I'm Quentin Tarantino. And I am Roger Avery. And today we have three exciting picks to talk about. Pulled by Quentin from the shelves of Video Archives. Absolutely. And first up, coming from the uh, in the drama section under L, is a movie that I cannot believe I have waited this long to see, but... I'm glad I did. Good, good things come to those that wait. Uh, Paramount Home Video called Lipstick. 
directed by a uh, director I'm a big fan of, Lamont Johnson, who also did a one-on-one and the McKenzie break and the uh, Ground Star Conspiracy. He did this in 1976. Falls into a genre, uh, well, actually two subgenres that I'm a fan of, revenge Maddox and the rape-revenge genre. Yeah, it manages to be... Have genres one one foot love. in both subgenres. Genres, genres you have always <laughs> loved. <laughs> genre, I'm a big fan of the rape revenge genre and a big fan of the revenge-o-matic. You're about to see a scene from Lipstick, a controversial new film about today's most explosive subject. Every human being has the right of simple consent, even women. Do you think I should testify? Yes, of course I think you should testify. You've been raped. The story of a woman's outrage and a woman's revenge. You've never seen anything like lipstick rated R. Okay, so now here's the back of the box for um, lipstick. Margot Hemingway makes her film debut as a high fashion model who is violated as much by the system as she is by her rapist. Chris Sarandon, Dog Day Afternoon, plays the low-key music teacher who brutally attacks her and forces her to the point of desperation and revenge. As Margot's lawyer, Anne Bancroft, the slender thread, the miracle worker, gives a brilliant, uncompromising portrayal of a woman who takes on the legal system in an attempt to define the rights of women in this complex and controversial issue. Director Lamont Johnson, A Gunfight, guides the film to its shocking and violent conclusion after convincing the audience that, in some cases, only after a rape occurs does the real horror story begin. (laughs) I remember when this film came out, I remember the ads on TV. It was sort of like rape had been dealt with to some degree in a lot of different films up until this time, but it really was only TV movies that focused in on rape as like the subject for the entire film. I think uh, 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 Lisbeth Montgomery did one called Cry Rape. That was a a big hit uh, in the early 70s. But this was actually the first studio film to deal with the subject of rape as uh, as a big studio motion picture. Now, the thing that was actually interesting that I remember talking about with Rogers was it had a wonderful ad campaign. And I remember this to TV spots a lot. It showed you a bit of how you thought the film would go. Is this going to be the rape? The rapist will be in court and he'll present himself as a more innocent type person. There'll be a, a, a doubt cast on uh, Margot Hemingway, the lead character. And, it's, and it also would show how you know, she's basically almost being raped a second time going through the legal process in the court of law. Mm-hmm. But it suggested that there will be a comeuppance because then it would cut to the title treatment of lipstick and you would hear an automatic rifle go off. (laughs) But it never showed a a scene from the climax. I mean, but- It only implied it. Yeah, there only was an implication of where the plot would go, but there was never any scene, never any shot, never any still. So I, so this was, and that's almost unheard of for a revenge-o-matic. So we went into watching this movie, literally not knowing exactly how it was going to end in its last- 15 minutes. Completely. Now, I, actually, I knew nothing about it. The, and though I- had, had, You had heard of it before, Oh, right? yeah. I mean, I had rented this tape to people. To be honest, the the box is so beautiful mm-hmm. and graphic and well-designed. And it's one of these amazing Paramount Home Video fold-open boxes, which I had forgotten about. Mm-hmm. And when you showed me the box, I was like, oh, lipstick. I remember that. It had kind of always- I just had thought it was just like kind of a B-level exploitation movie at, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. we had been renting it. I hadn't ever really- thought about the movie, to be honest, that much. Uh And then you showed me the box and then you opened it up 
because mm-hmm. it opens up, showing the 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 Paramount Paramount uh, Mountain. Yeah, their yeah. branding on the yeah. on the inside, and then like <laughs> it's like they've really cared. The Paramount boxes are truly a thing of beauty of this era, like a graphic designer's like dream. Yeah, it's like <laughs> when you look at uh, like I I'm also a fan of the Warner Brothers boxes with their arbitrary catalog stills just stuck on their green background yeah, almost randomly like completely like randomly <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, this is like an actual graphic design well, well yeah uh, i mean, well, I mean what, make, what makes it special is they would take the one sheets and beautifully conform them to the size yeah. of a to the a, new style of packaging to a video cassette and you just i'm sitting here holding the lipstick box in my hand this is art directed they, they cared somebody spent time to do it the right way and if you go through all the Paramount boxes of this time period, they all they all have that look. They yeah, all two have of the movies feel. we saw this week were in Paramount boxes, and yeah. we and I noticed both of them were like that. And it was like, wow, look at and both of them are different, but they're the same. Mm-hmm. And there's like a real they're, they're unified, yeah, and no, yet if, they, they if have if their you, own personality. It's great. No, if you look at the it's early really box for uh, look at the early box for Love Story, look at the early box for uh, Little Darlings. I mean, they all just they're all uniform to a T. They're yeah. really terrific. So, Roger, what was your uh, take on uh, Lipstick when we watched it? I I uh, I happened to dig up a Franklin Browner uh, review of this. Oh, you did! I can't uh, wait which to I'll read in the, I'll read in the voice of uh, Bill Margold. Okay, great. But it basically is uh, directly lined in, influenced my opinion. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Gaspar Noé once said about the rape scene in his film Irreversible: "The rape has to be disgusting to be useful." The rape in Lipstick achieves that lowly aspiration, thanks in no small part to the disturbing source music in the film, composed within the film by a rapist teacher who ascends artistically and professionally, despite accusations made against him in a court of law by a professional lipstick model, who in turn is treated by the public no better than the horror of consumerist culture. Even her young sister on trial, played with depth and excellence by a preteen Muriel Hemingway, who the prosecutor explains that some adults like certain kinds of violent sex. Entering it into public record is fact. The music teacher's deviant pedophile and predatory behavior is not only allowed to continue, but is rewarded until he finally hurts someone she loves more than herself, leading her to the only human conclusion possible, hunting this child rapist down like a wild animal and laying him down before he accepts a teaching position at the local Catholic girls' school. <laughs> Okay, so that's like uh, Franklin Browner's take on the movie. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what to expect entering mm-hmm. into this, like you didn't, I guess. Mm-hmm. You know, neither of us did. And when it began, it Lamont Johnson, like he's a TV director. He's like an old time TV director. He's like a like a Frankenheimer style. He was doing fairy tale theater, like you know, look, he, Jack and the Beanstalk. Well, but, no, but he also did. That was a the, good one. That was a good one, by the way. Well, he also did one of the best TV movies of the seventies, The Execution of Private Slovak with uh, Martin Sheen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he did uh, 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 the first movie about homosexuality on TV uh, that certain summer. There's a an, an approach to the violence that's occurring mm-hmm. in this movie that somehow makes it watchable as if, you know, as if it's mass entertainment. But at the same time, it's freaking disturbing. Like this is like a, a guy who's no, it, well, been no, making things for a long time. No, 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 no. And he chooses. It's to- a big, look, at, it's a big Paramount movie about, uh, a rough subject, and it's meant to be a hard, powerful movie. It's it meant, is. It's meant to be along the lines of like straw dogs. It's meant to be along the lines of a deliverance. With a child. Yeah, yeah. I uh-huh. mean, it's it's mm. it's intense. We can talk about if the rape revenge ruins its seriousness towards the subject matter. I think a case can be made of, as far as that's concerned. Wait, that the, the rape revenge 
Well, but the fact that basic look, basically, it's it's an exploitation movie done by Paramount, all prettied up and done by Paramount, masquerading as as a social issue drama because it's because it's it's not quite ready to be as serious about his subject as you can tell that the screenwriters and the movie wants to be. Because one, the script is done by David Raphael, who is uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Cindy Pollock's main, main go-to yeah. guy. He, uh, uh, he writes most of his scripts. And the film has a very interesting patina. Well, you were you compared it like to a Tony Scott film at some at, at, yeah, well, at, it, at numerous points throughout it. You're like, this is so stylish, and yeah. it is. It is very stylish, you it's know. So and stylish, it, and it like and it bears comparison to a, a that Tony Scott style, even though it's not exactly it, but it's definitely a, a, a precursor mm-hmm. to the a Tony Scott style. And Lamont Johnson does a pretty good job with the film because. He's never really been able to, uh, except for maybe the McKenzie break, he wasn't able to actually inject that much style into his previous movies before because they just weren't appropriate for it. But this gives him a, an opportunity to do, uh, you know, almost like an American Jallo. Well, I was getting like <laughs> some Star 80 vibes, yeah, yeah, to be uh, honest, yeah. out of it. And I turned to you at some point, I think it was when it became a courtroom drama, which mm-hmm. was like the middle third. Yeah, yeah. And I turned to you and I said, is this a real story? Did this really happen? Mm-hmm. And you were like, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just made this up. <laughs> it's, it's like a fable. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, you know, and. But that's like the seriousness with which they, uh, they take it. And, you know, and I think Margot Hemingway, who is interesting. She never really followed her performance in this up with anything super substantial. She would like appear in this movie and she would appear in that movie. She'd appear on this TV show. She'd appear in that TV show. She was kind of famous for being this famous, beautiful model and for being uh, the granddaughter of mm-hmm. Ernest Hemingway. I think she's pretty fucking good in this movie. I think she's really solid. What you won, you sounds like faint praise, but you buy her as a world famous fashion model. Well, she is, and not only that, they double down by hiring her sister to yeah. play her sister. Well, and then and which lends a who also who delivers the, what I think is the best no, performance in the movie. She's fan, well, that courtroom scene with her. Mariel Hemingway is just fantastic, and the the movie lucked. Out Completely. when they got like a, a double Hemingway sister act. Look, I've since Lipstick, I have seen this film almost literally this film dozens of times, whether it be on Lifetime or whether it be a, a more lowly exploitation movie or whether it's out of Italy or out of wherever. But there's something about Margot Hemingway's performance in this. She's very distinctive. Yeah. Well, you buy her as a world-class model, but also she has that weird way of talking that uh, she kind of like strangling her words when she talks. She has this kind of a, Chirps li- a little lisp. Bit. Yeah. But it's charming and it's distinctive. Yeah. And it, it's, a, a, it's her performance that makes the rape scene Oh, she's powerful. brave. I mean, think, this is her first film, her bravery, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, coming coming into this film and really throwing herself literally. I would there. actually say the most haunting aspect of the entire movie, in fact, I can hear it, I've, I've, there hasn't been a day that has gone by since I've seen the movie that I hadn't thought about that moment right in the middle of the rape when she goes, you're killing me. Yeah. That just sounds so real and it seems like the most realistic thing i could have ever heard Felt like it could especially have since i mean he's like forcibly sodomizing her and and honestly throwing her around a bit though it's obviously controlled it's a hollywood situation and everything but mm-hmm. man she's controlling those falls and she's really going for it and she's in it she's inside of her no, performance well, it's, it's what the movie's so about I mean, she may have been yeah. feeling that in that yeah. moment that's why it feels realistic yeah it's a it's a it's 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 a real good scene all right now where i think the film where there's room for risability <laughs> yeah. 
as far as the film is concerned, I think is the conception of the rapist character that Chris uh, Sarandon plays. Now, Chris Sarandon actually is, he's doing a pretty good job. He's, uh, he's, he's a good actor, but I could totally see a world where like De Niro was offered this part and Harvey Cattell was offered this part and then they, them turning it down and, and uh, um, Chris Sarandon saying yes to it. Now, he starts off interesting in the film because part of the thing is he's a music teacher. And part of the thing about the story is that he's Meryl Hemingway, who's like 13 in the movie. He uh, He's her teacher. And she has a bit of a crush on him. And so she invites him to meet like her. Like an innocent crush. Yeah, and then, oh yeah, yeah. She's a young girl with a crush on her teacher. And she actually, I think, wants him to get together with her sister. Yeah. That's like her mm-hmm. child dream. Yeah, she's like, you know, she, uh, she has a crush on her handsome teacher. And so she invites him to meet. Uh, to play his music for. Well, she invites him especially to meet her famous sister, or her world famous sister. And part of the idea that like, you know, he's a composer and he's going to play some of this music for Margot Hemingway's character. So you're like, oh, wow, this is kind of interesting. You know, Travis Bickle uh, as a <laughs> composer. Okay, that kind of, that, which is how it comes across at first. And, you know, okay, that's an interesting idea. Until he plays the music and it's so fucking ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really it's weird. It's like, okay, what you would imagine the rape theme would be as he rapes her is literally the music that he records yeah. and that he plays through the rape. I mean, it's like... It's, well, that's what's going as, on inside yeah. of his head. As if every composition is rape theme number one. <laughs> then there's rape theme number two and then there's rape theme number three and then there's rape theme number four. And I've got to say that one of my favorite parts of Mary Hemingway's performance is she doesn't want to listen to the music at that given time. Uh, but, okay, fine. And then he plays it, and the look on her face is like, what the fuck is this yeah, shit? Yeah, what is this shit? <laughs> and she's happy when the phone rings and she can get away. She's happy when the phone rings. Like, I gotta go answer this. Whatever. Where he stops being able to be taken seriously as a serious character in this rape drama is when he turns into this smoothie movie villain after the rape is over. You know, it, it, it's like you could buy him just exploding and, 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 and doing this, but I don't buy this kind of movie villain that he turns into after the rape is over. Now he's this real smoothie and now he's not awkward at all. Actually, he's, he's, he's by, by far not awkward. Yeah, so he's a villain out of a, you know, he might as well be a villain out of a canon movie. He could be the, yeah. you know, he could be the guy in uh, a 10 to Midnight. Yeah, he's like just a psychopath on the loose. It's just, yeah. But now, uh, then the movie gets to its next big sequence, which is the courtroom scene, yeah. which is the courtroom section of the movie. Now, again, I didn't buy, I've seen the, these kind of scenes done a zillion times before. And so I didn't quite buy the obviousness of how Mario Hemingway is bulldozed over. Right. In the uh, uh, courtroom. I've seen that scene done a zillion times before, and I've seen it done more convincingly a zillion times before. It's just kind of, it's heavy handed and you know, she just bulldozed over. Now, I kind of knew that was going to be the case, but it's definitely the case. Now, the courtroom scene catches fire halfway through. Uh, when it actually becomes Anne Bancroft, who's her lawyer, gets to cross-examine yeah. Chris Sarandon. Right after you were like, nah, this is just turning into a court. Suddenly, Anne Bancroft showed up with conviction. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it's a combi- uh, the, 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 when the screenplay gets better, all right, all yeah. of a sudden the dialogue yeah. gets better. And you could actually tell that Anne Bancroft and Chris Sarandon actually vibed with each other, all right, during those scenes. And Chris Sarandon gets to become a good actor again. Yeah. And, and, and that is... That's when his character starts becoming interesting. Now, um, 
and the way the courtroom section actually ends up, it actually ends up, you know, on a powerful note. Then it gets to its third act, which, uh, uh, you know, presents a situation where uh, Mariel Hemingway falls into the clutches of Chris Sarandon's uh, uh, rapist character. And by this point, Mariel Hemingway's kid sister has practically wrestled the narrative from Margot Hemingway's hand. She's so good in that courtroom she, scene. She's especially so, there. She's so good in the courtroom scene and just you know and almost every scene afterwards. Yeah. You know, it's 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 always a little strange at the beginning when the movie just focuses in on her. But then at a certain point, it's not strange at all because I mean she literally is the co-protagonist of, of the film. Her emotions of a of a child trying to grapple and mm-hmm. understand all of these complex things that are happening play so much on her face. Mm-hmm. It, they're so upfront. It's so riveting to look at her perform in and this movie. Even, and there is, and there's even just this wonderful dynamic between the two sisters. You have the one that's the beautiful fashion model. Then you have the obviously a little bit more little bit tom, tomboy, tomboy yeah. one. All right. You know, and that that's an interesting dynamic between the two women. But then the screenplay almost stumbles on to a provocative idea in the case of Mariel Hemingway. On one hand, she 100% believes her sister account of what happened. She believes that her sister was raped. There's no question. Even if she can't explain it, she believes There's it. no question in her mind that her sister is telling the truth. She's actually even willing to lie on stand and suggest that she saw more than she did because uh, she believes her sister so much. But the provocative thing in the story is while she believes her sister, she does know the teacher. She's known him for a long time, for a kid a long time. And she had this crush on him. While she believes her sister, a little part of her can't believe he did it. Yeah. She doesn't think it's a mistake. She, but there's just a little part of her who can't believe that she's an innocent. That's he was what, he was capable of doing because this because she's innocent. And then that leads to a scene when uh, she goes to the school and sees that he's doing some sort of a school project with some dancers. It's like a total Alan Parsons project. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, no, exactly. No, he's well, he's totally this Alan Parsons and project kind of. He's uh, succeeding after after that. No, it's, no, it's actually it's strange. He's like, well, virile. Well, after one, that. Actually, he's that empowered. Music, that music is better than the music that we heard earlier. So yeah. it's like, well, why didn't you play this for me? And everyone's anyway. dancing to it. All of the girls in the school are into it. Yeah. The nuns want to like give him a, a extra, a, yeah. like a tenure job. They're yeah, yeah. So like all of a sudden now he's not a rapist. He might as well be Keith Emerson, all yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> ready to start Emerson and Lincoln Palmer. Yeah, all right. And, and uh, after uh, and after being <laughs> and after being honest in court, you know she's barely able to keep a job. The she's kind of tainted at this point. Yeah, it, it suggests that her uh, sleazy uh, photographer boyfriend uh, uh, Perry King dumps her. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was good to go. I was happy to see him go. All right. Uh, uh, <laughs> But then the scene between Chris Sarandon and Marilyn Hemingway manages quite effectively to predate the similar scene in Scorsese's Cape Fear. Cape Fear for sure. All right, when Max Cady yeah, actually charms, yeah, uh, you know, is able to charm Juliet uh, uh, Juliet Lewis. Um, okay, but then, like the way this movie kind of is, it starts off really terrific. <laughs> And then goes crazy with all the weird laser zappy shit. All right. That goes like, what the fuck? The movie 
completely had me. And then all of a sudden it got like, what the fuck is all this shit going on? <laughs> you don't, you're, you're not uh, so upset when she grabs a gun. And no, starts- that's different. <laughs> that's different. But we're talking about. You like that crazy we're, when we're uh, talking there's a gun about, in her hand. We're talking about Lazarium. All right. <laughs> what could possibly be the most challenging scene of the movie, Lazarium pops up. All yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, having said all that. When she gets her high-powered rifle and goes after the fucking guy, the whole movie was fucking worth it. <laughs> the whole goddamn movie was Yeah, worth I love it. that it's like a hunting rifle. It's like, yeah. uh, you know, 40 odd. She's right. out there like, you know. That ending was worth the whole goddamn like film. I didn't care about all, any misstep it had up to then was completely rewarded. She appropriately double taps him as you're meant to. Absolutely. I, I the only the we only, were screaming right on. Yeah. The only misstep was probably the because we don't need it. I don't need a court of law to tell me that she's innocent at the end of the movie. That's irrelevant. Yeah. No. No. I, no. I know uh, the mis the misstep just before the final freeze frame is hearing the 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 verdict of the jury. It would have been stronger if we yeah, didn't. We know. let her off. You know. Sometimes you have to take the law in your own hands. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been stronger if we didn't know the outcome. All right. Yeah. And just. We should have written our own outcome. Now, I would have written she got off, but I didn't need to hear them say that she got off. But I look, but like when it comes to that ending, man, I was like, right fucking on. Oh, yeah. And especially <laughs> when she runs around and he's, especially he's be, already dead especially, or dying and she shoots him again. I, and especially because I hadn't seen it before, you know, and I hadn't I I I. I had a feeling that an automatic rifle would play part in it. And since we see her they like in, a, pho- up, in yeah. a photograph skeet shooting with yeah. her, apparently her grandfather, right, Ernest Hemingway. All right. Uh, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I guess this is an automatic weapon. Things going to actually work out. Yeah. All right. Uh, um, he's a famous duck hunter. All right. Along with being a, <laughs> a famous model. Um, Oh, and the fact that she does it all dressed up in that red dress. Yeah, she's wearing a fashion because she's in the middle of a fashion shoot. She's in the middle of a fashion shoot. Her hair is done. Her lipstick. Yeah, uh, she's uh, wearing the dress of like a murderer in a Fritz Lang film. Yes, like literally (laughs) she says, wow, this is the most beautiful dress I've ever put on in my whole career. Yeah, and that's the one you're going to use to kill the rapist, the the pedophile rapist. Yeah, that you blast him. I looked at you like I cannot believe with all how much I love Revenge of Maddox that I haven't seen this movie until just now. We were howling at the end. We were like, it was such a great uh, feeling at yeah. the end when, when finally, finally this bastard gets his. Uh, and she literally does the thing that like you, that you want to see in a Revenge of Maddox, like where she's got the gun, bam, 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 bam. And now he's dead and she's still shooting the dead body until she was dry firing. That's right, baby. <laughs> Unload. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She dry fires in the end. She's like, she'd keep going if she, she could. If she had, she put in another clip. She would. If Roger Avery had been directing, she probably would have used the gun as a club after running out of bullets yeah. and just <laughs> bludgeoned him until he's a pulpy mess. So that is my take and my my final uh, verdict on lipstick. Well, it's a good verdict. Mm-hmm. I. Uh, I was curious about the music, uh-huh. and so I looked up the composer, Michel Polnareff, who is a, um, a French guy. So I looked him up. I looked up where he was at. I listened to his music. He was like a rock star. He's a rock star in France. Oh, very well-known, very well-loved, uh, Johnny Halliday-style rock star. Like, so, Like Jean-Michel Jarre. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, a little bit like that. And uh, so I, I listened to the song that he did just before this, which is called Jesus for Tonight, mm-hmm. which was almost like 
I don't know if Oasis did country music. That's kind of what it sounded like. It did not sound at all anything like this kind of this electronic Uh Ellen Parsons music that they had in it. So I was like, well, what the hell? So I looked a little further and he had fled France because of tax evasion, because his Mm -hmm. business manager ripped him off and he owed taxes in France. And so he fled France and came to the United States. And I suspect it was David Foster who found him. Mm-hmm. The the producer. Who was the, uh, they call him a music arranger on this, but I think that's like a music supervisor yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, at this time, at least on this film. And I kind of think we should probably credit David Foster a little bit because I think he found this guy, knew that he was in trouble and looking for a gig, had no money and gave him a, a job composing. Mm-hmm. I think it's Somebody did. Yeah. And uh, he's stayed here ever since. I, uh, what else has he done? Nothing that I know of. No other movies? No, just music. Just mm-hmm. he's putting out albums. He's, uh, mm-hmm. as far as I know, he's still on tour. <laughs> he's living in Palm Desert, I think. Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so I watched this movie on Amazon Rent, and just everyone out there that wants to watch it, the transfer is beautiful for Amazon. So I would go rent it. Mm-hmm. Intro is awesome. Yeah, we mm-hmm. liked our. Well, yeah, I had my uh, wait, my wait. soft, beautiful VHS uh, Look, analog I, NTSC. The, the, glory, the glory of emulsion in every shot. Yes, 480 by 320, <laughs> baby. Chemical swirl. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. I'm a Chris Sarandon fan. I don't know why, but... I can tell you why. Well, he's in one of my favorite episodes of Deep Space Nine. Well, there's that because we're big Trekkies. Yeah, he's in uh, season two, episode 11 for all you fans out there. It's a Ferengi episode. Go watch it. It's a luck episode. It's a luck episode. Uh, But he's also in Fright Night, which I showed you, I'm sure, when you were young. He's great in Fright Night. And I love Fright Night. But I'm a Chris Sarandon fan and... I loved him in this. Uh, I do agree, though, with you, Quentin, that in the courtroom scene where he just kind of becomes smooth talking and officer, she wanted me to tie her up. It just it kind of lost steam for me. In 1977, that was a a legit um, defense. It doesn't fly now. Not in (laughs) not in 2022. But one thing you guys didn't mention is there's a lot of encoding in the film that I noticed. And maybe it's because I'm watching on the beautiful Amazon transfer. But when he is uh, making rape theme number one, Mm -hmm. when he's recording the pigeons, there is a magazine behind him with her on it. And these are the headlines on the magazine. Number one, the book that can change your life. Don't say yes when you want to say no. (laughs) And the second one, yeah. And by the way, don't say yes. That must be Dianetics. Yeah, and don't say yes when you want to say no is an underlined. And the number two is love in brackets, sudden, intense, and brief, in brackets, with an improper stranger bad for you, the new relaxed view of brief encounters. Yeah. So he's reading this magazine that's behind him while he's making that rape theme. He's a product one of culture. Yeah, he is a product of what she's selling. Yeah. And I like the fact that uh, 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 Gala makes makes it a point to 
read all the headlines of the newspapers and the in the in the different movies when it comes to her turn. All right, like Paul, Paul, I- Paul Bortel's headlines from <laughs> from, Piranha. from Piranha. Okay, Mario Hemingway's magazine covers. I know so somebody has effort. to. Somebody has to. So, but a lot of effort. I love that. It's like his character is being built upon what she's selling. She's mm-hmm. selling this whole thing of don't say us when you want to say no and impromptu strangers. Uh, rendezvous. But what's weird is she is so professional. She is such a professional in the film. And yet she is, you know, the one blamed for everything. Yeah. And the rape itself. Okay. Everyone that I know always quotes Perfect Blue by Satoshi Kon being like one of the most intense rape moments in movies. It's always the one that they go to. Man, they should be reaching for lipstick. I started yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. getting nauseous during it mm-hmm. uh, and started getting sweaty. Like my hands are even sweating thinking about it. And, yeah, it's, and when it's he he nightmare when he takes he I mean he throws her around the room and then she slides down and he's like wondering where whatever something is that he's looking for. I don't know really what he's looking for, but he grabs her head and he bangs it and then bangs it a second time yeah. on her on her bedpost. And I was just thinking, like frick, like if I was in this like situation because later they ask her little sister, well, don't you think your sister could have fought back? And it's like, yeah, her sister's a strong woman. Well, he, she but just she, had her head. She just had her head like bashed in on the on the bedpost. No, he's, he beats the fuck out of her. And it's so intense and it's so believable. And one thing I have to say is she fights back like in a very believable way that she's like screaming. She opens yeah, the door. It felt real. It feels so real. It's just, yeah. he, he's just, he just pummels and her he, and, then, and, and he takes, takes, you know, he beats her down. Oh yeah. And he's actually, he's looking for the lipstick. He's asking, where's the lipstick? And he takes her in the bathroom and he starts putting the lipstick and saying, I want it on me. I want it. And it's just, oh, it's just, oh, it's one of the worst rape scenes personally I've seen. I just thought it was just, so gross. Well, that bodes well for the movie because it's not presenting the rape scene as as entertainment. No, and it was not entertaining. Yeah, which, was... as Gaspar Nui says, has to be as disgusting. It has to be disgusting yeah. to be useful. It's present. It it absolutely positively presents the killing of the rapist as entertainment. Yes, because, yeah. because which it is. I think <laughs> which it is. Yeah, whoever you are, when you after you watch the rape scene, you're like, I can't wait for him to get just like. Filled with bullets. Like, well, which is why the courtroom sequence is so yeah, frustrating. It's so frustrating because it goes on so long. But you know what? I didn't like the courtroom scene. I was like looking at my clock. I was thinking, oh, this is going like a long time. Like, where's the revenge? Where is it? But it's because she's not doing the revenge for herself. She is doing the revenge for her little sister because he has to go and hurt her. She's about to go back to Colorado or yeah, Wyoming yeah, yeah. or something. Uh, yeah. And it's not until he actually does it to her sister, takes her sister's innocence, that she just goes ballistic. And mm-hmm. that made the courtroom seem worth it because I think a lot of people, when bad things happen to them and the things systems fail for them they say you know what i just give up i'm just gonna like take it and move on but when it happens to someone that you love who does not have a voice to Mm -hmm. stand up for themselves who just cries and says i was just going to the bathroom Mm -hmm. i mean i'm like i'm getting chills like thinking about it but man i was so happy that she did it for her sister not just for herself but for her little Mm -hmm. sister and i was just like you know i'm sold i love this movie i mean the thing about the i mean the thing about the courtroom scene is is look obviously it's all Designed where the metaphor of the idea is she's being raped again yeah. this time in the in the in, in uh, the public eye in the public eye in the court of public opinion and also in the in the actual legal and she's been talked into it in the actual legal court. Now the <laughs> thing is, I think it airs too much to simplicity. Yeah. All right, to no, the, I agree to with the that. way. How, but like I said though, 
the cross-examination scene between Anne Bancroft and Chris Sarandon goes a long way to, to redeem it mm-hmm. a little bit because it's, it's, the dialogue just gets better. And now all of a yeah. sudden, Anne Bancroft has something to play other than just righteous indignation. Well, and how about yeah. the prosecution's uh, interrogation of Muriel Hemingway, the yeah. her, her little well, sister, the, well, no, is, the, is, is such the, a, the a powerful the defense moment. Why well, he actually gives one of the best performances in the movie. Yeah, the, he, I, yeah. I think, think he's better than Anne Bancroft. He's He's very good. Is that it for lipstick? What I, more can be said? I mean, I I loved it. I thought it was great. So I uh, ultimately I, I loved did too. that ending. It's worth it. And well, no, you love right before the ending, not the little end cap of oh no, that's a tag. That's a tag. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a tag. <laughs> that, that, yeah, no, the, the shooting is the climax. Yeah. All right, that that's a. Uh, you just the, said tag, and tag was one, the secret <laughs> yeah. film that we saw that <laughs> that we didn't get all the that way. We through. didn't get all the way through. So, <laughs> <laughs> and that brings to a close. That puts the cap on lipstick. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I bought my VHS tape on eBay for twenty nine forty two. Very strange amount, but it's the same. I think they call it a gatefold. Uh, what this box oh. is? Uh, I guess this, that, yeah. like interesting. What do they call it? Gate a gatefold. I guess because well, because you know it's not it's not just slipped over the top. Yeah. It has its own little cradle. Yeah. We, yeah. we like that. It, it, it's, <laughs> and it doesn't like. And it has it. a little. And has. It's a gatefold. Yeah, it has a, that's a gatefold. Quentin is like flashing the little, the little tab. tab. The, the little I'm, tab at yeah. me. I'm, I'm fingering the tab. Yeah. Stop doing that. It's disturbing. Stop fingering the tab on the box of lipstick. Stop fingering the gatefold tab. <laughs> okay, that's enough for this movie. <laughs> oh, and the uh, tape number was 2326. The one and only... The wrestler. Well, if you folks just tuned in, this is not Queen for a day. This is wrestling from Madison Square Garden, believe it or not. And this is what the well-dressed wrestler will wear this year. Henry Winkler is the one and only. A Carl Reiner film, rated PG. Now showing Great Lakes Mall, Brookgate, Low Cedar Center, and Lowe's West. And our second half of our double feature, another Paramount home video, this time from the comedy section under O, is the movie The One and Only, Henry Winkler's uh, second feature film after he became famous with the Fonz. First, there was uh, he had a, a, a small movie career. Should have had a bigger movie career. I, I thought it was really terrific in his movies. Uh, one was Heroes with him and Sally Field. And then the uh, next one is uh, the one and only uh, directed by Carl Reiner, starring Henry Winkler and Kim Darby. Now, one of the things, the reason I chose this one, I always really got a kick out of this movie. I saw it, I think, the sneak preview of it at the Old Town Mall when it opened up. But also, I've been wanting to put more comedies in here, and we haven't found a place, and finally I decided to just make a place. And I actually even kind of like the idea of following up lipstick with... uh, Funny Paramount comedy. So, Roger, why don't you do the honors and uh, read the back of the box? Well, first of all, I just want to say it's another Paramount home video box with the, what did they call it? A chiclet box? Gatefold. Gatefold. <laughs> Where did you get that word that you just said? <laughs> a chiclet fold? What a chiclet box. That almost sounded like a slur against Gala. <laughs> Anyhow, it is another, and and this one graphically different, mm-hmm. but it's beautiful all the same. Same basic design with their uh, interior branding. And I, don't, one, I don't know who one, was in charge. Of and that one has there, like but... still has the kind of the snap. If you open it up a little bit, then try to snap it back. 
Yeah, yeah. it has that. No, you're still doing it too much. You just let it do it. Stop using your finger just to let it flick. <laughs> yeah, see, she, she got it. it <laughs> she knows how to close the box. <laughs> okay, so uh, the back of the box. Everything you said just sounds dirty. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the one and only Henry Winkler, who's Fonzie, and that's in quotes, characterization captivates millions of TV fans every week on the long-running Happy Days, portrays an outrageously self-confident but out-of-work actor, a young man who dreams of stardom and leaves college to pursue fame and fortune, searching for it in the most unlikely of arenas, the wrestling ring. Winkler, in this incisive film role, and Kim Darby as his loving wife who finds it difficult to cope with her husband's antics, are sublime. The witty, well-paced script is imaginatively directed by the comic great Carl Reiner. That's it? That's it. 1978. That's not that good of a description. I mean, it doesn't what? even set it in the 50s, which is a very important aspect of the entire story that takes place in the 50s. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't, uh, and actually a selling point, I would think, because of Happy Days. Yeah, because of Happy Days and also their, his strange gateway to success, which is through the first Beginning of televised wrestling. Yeah, the rise of wrestling and the popularity of wrestling at mm -hmm. that time. The thing about The One and Only, uh, it's directed very well by uh, Carl Reiner. It's actually one of my more favorite directing jobs of his. But as time has gone on, even more than Henry Winkler, even more than Carl Reiner, the MVP of the piece seems to be the screenwriter Steve Gordon, mm. who wrote the screenplay was to write one more screenplay that he would direct, a little film called Arthur, and then he would die of a heart attack, never to make another film again. You can make a direct correlation between uh, his screenplay for The One and Only and Arthur just immediately. They're both about two obnoxious lead characters. Hiding their pain. Yeah, hiding their pain with just like one funny quip line after another, after another, after another. And they're both two difficult characters that it's actually hard to like, but at the end of the day, they come across as such powerhouse bulldozers <laughs> that yeah. they uh, uh, end up flattening the audience. Henry Winkler first heard of the script because it was written for uh, Dustin Hoffman. And Dustin Hoffman really liked it and really considered doing it. He ended up not doing it. And then when it went off the market, as far as Hoffman was concerned, that's when Henry Winkler and Carl Reiner snapped it up. But the thing about it is there's an aspect that you could almost imagine that Andy Schmidt, the character that uh, Henry Winkler plays, actually grows up to become Michael Dorsey <laughs> in Tootsie. Yeah, yeah. He's very, the, 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 there's a similar aspect yeah. to the characters. The difference is- Dedication to performance. Yeah, I, well, like and I, a, I'm sure there's aspects of the one and only that uh, Hoffman brought in- For sure. To uh, Tootsie. The big difference being, and I'm almost- um, Maybe not on the same side of the uh, uh, as the movie when it comes to this. As as problematic as Michael Dorsey's character is, in just in terms of being a, a likable human being, it's beyond question that he's supposedly a great actor. He's Dustin Hoffman. You know, in that case, he's Dustin Hoffman. His eccentricity has come out of the fact that he cares too much because he's too self possessed. You know, uh, uh, you know, he he quits Chekhov Productions because he won't uh, uh, go downstage. Yeah, I'm not going to be a FC. spear carrier. Is yeah. basically the implication, the yeah. idea. Okay, where now the one and only the character is very similar. However, 
the movie never makes up its mind, is the guy actually talented or not? Is he actually a good actor? And then I actually remember hearing Henry Winkler talk about it on like the Dinosaur Show, just sitting on that couch with Dinah and a bunch of other people. And he goes, well, the guy thinks he's a really great actor, but in, in actual fact, he's a sham. Hmm. I didn't see that at all. I don't think he's a sham. I think he would be a terrific actor. I like movies about characters that have got this all-consuming passion and even their fraudulent aspects of their human being character is secondary compared to their artistic pursuits. Now, the reason I like a character like that is I think that's what I was like all through my yeah, as I was watching all through movie, my 20s. And, I was thinking know, this is the Quentin Tarantino story as it, I was watching it. It might as well be the Quentin Tarantino story. Yeah. You know, uh uh-uh. uh. And I had about as much to show for. I had less to show for yeah. right, than <laughs> Andy Schmidt did until eventually I, I did. But the thing that makes this movie, though, is just the jokes are hysterical. It's just like one great line after another. I think it's a really, really funny movie. Oh, so the plot, basic plot line is he's going to a college in this, uh, um, in the early fifties and he wants to be the big actor in school. And uh, he falls in love with Kim Darby, who steals the show. Actually, I think, I think her performance is fantastic. And she's not exactly, exactly what you would expect. She actually is a stronger character than uh, she has any right to be, but it's, it's, it's in the page, but she also brings it out. And he starts pursuing her, even though she's out of his league and she's like, she's out of his league because she's sane and he's insane. Uh, but, but love conquers all. And then yeah, he gets her and then uh, they get married. And they move to New York. Trying to make it in a big city. And that is as well done a story of like uh, a young couple in the Paul Newman era to be actors in a cold water flat in New York in the early 50s with only uh, uh, off-Broadway and some live television as an option, you know, uh, him trying to forge a career. He's not able to have any luck until he meets uh, Hervé Villachez, who plays a little person uh, wrestler, who who plays a little person who's an actor, but also he, he, in his off times, he gets involved with wrestling. And go, well, it's like acting, you know, you have cheering crowds. And, and that was play- the thing in the 70s, midget yeah, wrestling. And right? you play a character. Well, this is the 50s, remember? You know? Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 And so he can't make it, he can't get any movement as a real actor playing real roles, but then he finds his own way to performing via this wrestling circuit. Here's the ovation of the people. And, you know, and he gets to play characters and, uh, and, and rehearses those characters. And it, it's, it's acting. He you finds know, fulfillment. He, he, he finds fulfillment. He finds his stage. He yeah. finds his stage. And he finds his stage with his people. There's an interesting scene. It's almost taken, almost, which the whole movie is also very similar to Ed Wood in, yeah, in a lot of different ways, sure. including For like sure. the, the group of people hanging around him. And Kim Darby almost has a scene straight out of Ed Wood when she goes, no, 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 you see, you like the freaks. <laughs> You're happy with the freaks. And the freaks like you. But <laughs> <laughs> well, um, when you come home, I want you. Yeah. I want the real you, yeah. is what she keeps saying. But what she doesn't know is there's no real you there. There is no real yeah, you. I would argue there is. And that he hides it's it. It's never been shown. It's, and it's, not he, shown. it's not shown in the entire movie. Well, what he presents as a real you is actually the biggest lie of the entire movie is when he, I, I'm straightening up my act. Yeah. That is actually the biggest moment of lying. Mm -hmm. Franklin Browner wrote a review of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) To be the one and only is to be an only child. To be an only child is to be the center of attention. Water finds its level. The child 
must for the rest of their lives work to live up to that attention, for better or worse. For Henry Winkler, in The One and Only, it's for the better. As this proto-garp, proto-jerk, hides his insecurities with a narcissistic desire for the ovation of strangers. However, despite all of this self-aggrandization, one can only recall the resonant quote of President Theodore Roosevelt, who said, It is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles, or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions? Who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement? And at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who know neither victory nor defeat. He's talking about everyone in the audience, anyone outside of the arena. And one can really say that Henry Winkler in this film is fully in the arena, mm -hmm. for better or worse. And in watching the movie, I started thinking, who is this movie about? I mean, I know that it's the Quentin Tarantino story, and it's about Quentin. <laughs> <laughs> but he, like, it's also, it's probably also the Steve Gordon story. Mm -hmm. It's probably also the Carl Reiner story. I mean, really, I, I, mean, I, I, not only that, I mean, there's a whole lot of similarity to the young Mel Brooks. I mean, there could even be a jumping off point for Carl Reiner to do the film in the first place. Yeah. So, oh, this is like, this is like Mel when he was in his 25. Yeah. I mean, he, <laughs> they do a, a prologue to the film in black and white where um, his character is a young boy and mm -hmm. he's an only child mm -hmm. he, and he's entertaining for the neighbors and he's treating them like an audience. And as I was like thinking about my reading and the meaning of this movie, I started thinking about things like, you know, that being, I was an only child. Mm -hmm. I think you're an only child. Uh, you think? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, Have you ever met my brother in the last <laughs> 40 well, years? Well, <laughs> your dad and mine were wandering types. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what's well, out there? Well, maybe, but no, nothing official. <laughs> nothing official. But, you know, being an only child, you know, you're, in some ways, the center of attention. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're all there is. And this movie is like about being an outsider. I mean, being an outsider in this movie is it, it's kind of about being a nerd, but it's, there's also. Yeah, he's more now. I would say because, more outsider. But because this is Steve Gordon, because this is Carl Reiner, there is absolutely a kind of Jewish outsider discussion being had in here. Oh, absolutely. Which at first I was thinking, no, no, it's just, he's a nerd. He's an outsider. But then there's that one moment when it all breaks and he tells her, what are you going to do? You're going to go back to Iowa and sit there in a the house with Jesus on the wall, mm -hmm. a picture of Jesus on the wall. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whoa, I don't know where that came from. I don't know if it came from Steve Gordon. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it came from Carl Reiner. I don't Winkler. know if it came from Henry Winkler in the moment. Cause that's mm -hmm. what it felt like to mm -hmm. me. And it felt like he was like fully in character, but he's talking about like, I mean, at least being in Iowa, being an outsider. And some of Andy Schmidt's dialogue in this, I have kept in my You've personal used. arsenal You've used. for years. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> you know, when uh, uh, when she's had enough of him and she goes, look, I'm going to get out of the car and leave. And he goes, get out. Goes, okay, if I get out, I'm not coming back in. I'll 
take that chance. <laughs> I've said that for years, all right, I'm because sure, of this sure, movie. I'm sure you've said it to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good line. It's, this movie's full of like really strong lines like it's that. It's a good line. You know, and then it, the, the, my other favorite line is like, uh, okay, goodbye. Tell your grandkids you once stayed in a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> and he effectively says what Theodore Roosevelt said, which was, yeah, yeah. you know, they're in the audience. I don't care what they think. They're all in the audience and they're always going to be in the audience. Well, now there's an interesting moment in the film that it's um, a funny scene is he gets the job as a, he gets in his college. Uh, they're doing a production of King Lear and he plays a spear carrier. He has one line. Ed Bigley Jr. is playing Lear of all people. Right? He's, <laughs> he's playing Lear in this. Like seriously. Horrible. <laughs> what looks like a horrible college production. Yeah. So you see him rehearsing the play and Harold Gould is the director is like practically ripping his hair out. All right. Uh, at at uh, everything Andy Schmidt's doing over this one little line. And uh, so finally comes time to do the play. And it comes time for his line. And then he just completely takes over the play. He takes over the play. He starts saying anything he wants. He's like doing pratfalls. He ends up committing suicide on stage. Yeah. <laughs> he, com- he commits suicide with his own spear. All right. And when the audience breaks into applause, he stands up and <laughs> bows and then lays back down again. Yeah. He ruins the play, but steals the whole show. So later it has him like laying in bed with his wife and he's just kind of going over it. Oh man, I killed him. Did you hear him out there? I killed him. And then finally his wife says, but what about the play? I mean, you ruined the play. All those people got together to to do the play. They didn't want to see that stupid play. (laughs) (laughs) They wanted to laugh and I gave them a reason to laugh. Well, he's right. Yeah. Who wants to see a college production of King Lear starring Ed Begley Jr. as King Lear? Guy, you 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 hope Andy Schmidt comes out yeah. there. All right. And I like can, I can hear Carl Reiner even saying what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> they, they wanted to laugh and they did want to laugh. They were dying. <laughs> they were truly dying. And then Andy Schmidt threw him a lifeline. It, what she wants is the real him. And we may never really have a true glimpse of it, but we get a glimpse of it by not seeing it. It's 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 loud in its absence because he pushes everyone away whenever they get too close. Whenever they want the real him, that's when he turns it on even more. I would and argue- It's, it's I would, like a defense mechanism. But I would argue, and I don't think I thought this during the movie, but I'm thinking of this now as we're talking about it. To some degree or another, she constitutes- the real him. See, she's a real character. She's a really well-written character. Like the, the way that the Liza Minnelli character is not well-written yeah. in Arthur is as well-written as she is. She's almost like the John Gilgood character. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's a real three-dimensional human being, you know, in a movie that takes place in the 50s where women aren't like given three-dimensional roles. And Kim Darby makes very specific actress choices for this character. She's not a... There's nothing cookie cutter about her. It's a very specific performance and it's a very specific character. You completely buy that he loves her. Yeah. You completely buy that he's connected to her and he's he's committed to her. So the fact that he loves her, that's the closest to him being a real human being that is offered up. It's not like there's another there deep down there. No, no, no. There's just more Andy Schmidt deep down there. There's more Ham. So Roger, what is your, uh, what's your pompous critic guy's name? 
Franklin Browner. Franklin Browner. And he's based on William Margold, correct? Based on William Margold. He's uh, similar to William Margold. Uh, <laughs> they could easily have been friends, but probably enemies. <laughs> <laughs> Rivals. And Franklin Bruner liked the one and only, correct? Franklin Browner liked one and only, yes. Yes, okay. yes, 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 I did. Well, I have William Markle's review of the one and only. Splendid. <laughs> February 10th. Does he quote Theodore Roosevelt? No, he doesn't. <laughs> can you do it in, in Markle's I, voice? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. February 10th, 1978, which, by the way, came out the same week as Coma. Ah. Another shout back to another episode. The one and only isn't very much. A sporadically amusing tale of a fellow, Henry Winkler, who feels that he is the pearl and that the world is his delighted oyster. The film has moments, but very little in way of memories. Although packed with the cuddlies of love, marriage, and babies, the show, under Carl Reiner's bland direction, <laughs> fails to generate much in the way of caring from the viewer. Winkler who performed well in the meaty but muddled heroes, role has only bones to pick through as Andy Schmidt, the kind of guy who figures that life is a circus and that he is the main attraction. After embarrassing Kim Darby, who's pretty good as a victim and then partner to this guy's ego, <laughs> off her feet, Andy, Henry, tackles the world of wrestling. As the film is set in the 50s, when choreographed grappling flourished, the glimpses, as scripted by Steve Gordon, of the comically violent prima donnas, Winkler plays an assortment of caricatures, including a gorgeous George, are the highlights of the production. Support of varying sorts is supplied by William Daniels and Polly Holiday, at first unrecognizable as the gritty waitress from TV's Alice, as Darby's perplexed parents. Mr. B. Arthur, Gene Sachs, as a wrestling manager and mighty... Her villages. Reiner's last outing was the far more enjoyable Oh God. This time around, all he has come up with is a O. C minus. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Franklin Browner would take exception to that review. But um, I have to say, but I appreciate I, its writing style. <laughs> I appreciate the writing style, and I also appreciate his uh, mention of Oh God because. I like the one and only, but I really like Oh God. I really don't like Oh God. And, and, and I haven't seen Oh God since really a long time. But my memory of Oh God is, uh, it's, it's super fond. Like mm -hmm. it's, I don't know, John Denver, the time period, he's mm -hmm. working at a supermarket. Like everything about it, I just kind of, even George Burns being God. And I don't mm -hmm. know. I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like all of it. It's, I like Oh God. But I think... The film is best talked about as the second in a very strong feature film career for Henry Winkler. That was unfortunately uh, uh, cut short. It, it's too bad. All right. I, uh, you know, he was a superstar playing Fonzie on television. I sure. mean, to such a degree, it's funny because I had household name. Oh, I hadn't seen it in a long time, but I watched uh, uh, um, uh, the Goodbye Girl, and in the Goodbye Girl. Uh, Quinn Cummings has a picture of, of the Fonz hmm. on her bedroom that it's so prominent in her bedroom <laughs> that you almost are having a staring contest with Fonzie anytime you go is in there. Is it that leather jacket? With yes, the that famous. Is that famous, uh, famous where he's leaning a little? Yeah, the famous one where he, yeah. it's kind of, it's like the closest thing Henry Winkler ever had to a full-on glam shot. Yeah, it's a glam shot. And it's a total glam shot. And it's like, put hey. right, it's put right in the middle of the screen. <laughs> so you're kind of having a staring contest with it. But there's even is a touch of... Uh, um, character added to it 
because if you remember the goodbye girl, part of the the deal that they make is uh, the little girl moves in with her mother and Richard Dreyfus gets the little girl's bedroom. So they don't let the little girl move all of her junk into her mom's room. All right. You know, so it's, it pretty much stays for the most part, uh, Quinn Cummings room throughout most of the thing, just with a few, uh, uh, Elliot Garfield, uh, eccentricities thrown around, but it's obvious that the mother said, okay, you can't take all the, your, cause it's, 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 it's great looking at a room to see all the different famous celebrities from that time. They're on her wall. Okay. She couldn't bring everybody, but she could bring one. And the one she brings is Fonzie. Yeah. So Fonzie actually moves over to the mother's bedroom. And like again, you have staring contests with him every time that they have a scene there. But it was like, but see the neeks, you can't bring all the junk. But the, the one that moved over to the mom's room was, yeah. the, was, the, was the photo of Fonzie. But that just goes to show what a huge star Henry Winkler as Fonzie was at that time. Such a star. He was one of the biggest stars on television. Like, yeah, by, household by, name. By a mile. But then he went into feature films. Like one, like he was offered Greece. They wanted him to be Danny Zuko really? in Greece. Yes. But he turned it down because I don't want to play Fonzie. You know, I would just yeah, be, I, I would just be playing one, I'm not really a singer, and and uh, I would just be playing Fonzie and I don't want to just do a big yeah, bunch of version Travolta of and the way he dances of me being it's like Fonzie. It's hard to rip myself out of that movie the way it is. You know, so he plays a Vietnam veteran in a romantic comedy uh, heroes, and then plays this character. In the one and only, and neither film does really well. It doesn't really set him off on his feature film career, and he only goes back starring in a feature film, you know, uh, like four years later when he stars in uh, Night Shift. Right, right. For uh, for Ron Howard. However, there is one movie that Henry Winkler almost did. I like the movie that was made, but I can also imagine the Henry Winkler version as well. You know, he starred in, uh, as one of the guys in Lords of Flatbush. Yeah. Working with Perry King, and he's working with Sylvester Stallone in that film. Uh, so he moves out to uh, uh, Los Angeles, and then within a few weeks, he gets the part as Fonzie. And so now he's set up his shows on the air. He's not the superstar he is yet, but, you know, but he's doing pretty good. He's doing pretty good. He's, he's, he's it's, got a network show. Yeah, exactly. I think it's past its first season, you yeah. know, so Fonzie's already a thing now. So all of a sudden, uh, Winkler gets a call from uh, Sylvester Stallone and goes, hey, look, you know, I just moved to uh, Hollywood. I got my dog. I got my my wife and the, my car just died on me. All right, on Sunset Boulevard. Can you come pick me up? So he comes and he, you know, picks up Sylvester Stallone. He's got his gorgeous wife, Sasha Stallone, in the car. He's got Butkus, that crazy dog yeah, is yeah. from the from the Rocky movies. Winkler said like, no, sloppy whole, dog. My whole backseat was just like, uh, needed a snorkel with all the drool. <laughs> so Sly has just moved to, to Hollywood and I, I help him out. And this is before Sly has written Rocky. The script that Sly wrote, that was his big magnum opus that he was trying to get made before Rocky was a script called Hell's Kitchen that he later made into Paradise Alley. Yeah. Now, when Stallone wrote the script, he wrote it to be a trifecta. So he wrote the Cosmo character for Robert De Niro. Mm -hmm. He wrote the uh, Armada Sante character for, for Al Pacino. And then naturally he wrote Kid Salami, Vic, to, <laughs> uh, uh, for him. Yeah. They said no to all that. All right. Uh, so he's just trying to get it going, trying to get it going, trying to get it going. And so he shows it to Henry Winkler. Mm -hmm. 
And Henry Winkler reads it and goes, hey, this is really good. I think I can set this up with ABC television. And so Stillman goes, yeah, sure, go ahead, go ahead. So he goes to ABC and he gets it set up. And, and Henry would play Cosmo and Stallone would play Vic, play Kisalami. And they'd find the third guy you know, to be uh, the brother Lenny. It's all set up and like uh, uh, Henry's going to be one of the producers on it. And it's interesting in his career because I understood the Fonzie persona was so strong when it came to Henry Winkler that he always leaned away from the black leather jacket persona to try to sure. find things that were the opposite of that. Yeah. If he had done Paradise Alley, that would have been the only time he had leaned in to the persona that he set up. And I'm not necessarily saying that I think Henry Winkler would have been better than Stallone was playing Cosmo. I think Stallone's really good as Cosmo. But I really would have liked to have seen Henry Winkler once do a jumping off point from the Fonzie persona. And, and, and him playing Cosmo with that terrific dialogue that Stallone has would have been a wonderful fit for him. And in a way, it would have allowed him to kind of reset all that Fonzie stuff mm-hmm. because he would have done something well, else in, in yeah, he, tandem well, almost. Well, he wouldn't that, have been, he wouldn't have been Fonzie, but he would have still been a New York tough guy. Yeah. He was like a kind of a greaser. Uh, I don't know what you call that guy. Well, leather it, well, jacket. Yeah. Uh, it would have been a leather jacket. He would have been a, a con man. He would have been, yeah. which is not who Fonzie is. All right. But he would, but he would have used the same voice Yeah, and he would, and, and the outfit would have been similar. And, you know, uh, and Happy Days was still going strong. No, it was, it was at the beginning. It yeah. was right now. He was I mean, look, he, he was able to walk into ABC and they they set him up big time. But the reason it didn't happen, I always heard that Stallone was uh, distressed by his magnum opus being turned into a TV movie. Mm. And so he begged In those days. That was still a yeah, very so, big. Uh, so, he, yeah. So he begged Henry Winkler not to do it. And so. Winkler dropped it, but that's not the truth. That's not the truth at all. Uh, uh, Henry Winkler told me, "No, that's not the that's not the case." I told Sly, "I'm going to ABC," and he was all for it. It was because ABC they were down with Stallone playing Vic, and they were down with um, Henry playing Cosmo, but they wanted to bring another screenwriter on and give the script a polish. And Stallone just begged Henry, please, please, please don't let them rewrite my baby. Please don't let them rewrite my Stallone baby. Stallone is a great writer. Too. Yeah. I mean, he's a, he's an excellent writer. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and so, uh, uh, you don't Henry, need somebody to come in and rewrite him. Yeah. So Henry Winkler put the kibosh on it. He pulled it, he, he pulled it and gave the script back to Stallone. And then literally the next year, Stallone writes Rocky. <laughs> but I was always a big fan of Henry Winkler as an actor. I thought he was like terrific as an actor. And I, I, I really like the movie Heroes a lot. I think he's wonderful in that. And I think he's he's hysterical in this. What I love is that he's hysterical, but he's also, there's like this layer of, I don't know, pain. I feel like- like I don't think the character is thinks he's as in much pain as you want to put, put I, on him. I felt a kind of only child syndrome coming out well, of I him. Well, I felt an only child syndrome. I just disagree that he's in pain. I mean, you know, he just, if, if, if he gets a good job, he's not going to be in pain at all. Well, when you are the one and only, you are the one, but you are also the only, is the point. You can't have a normal relationship. You can't have a normal marriage, even. Okay, okay, but you're not describing anything that reflects anything he does in the movie. 
Well, he actually no, I'm seemed, reflecting what she's saying about him. Well, that was my point. <laughs> <laughs> Which, and she, being his wife, is giving an honest uh, appraisal of him, which he is unable to give because he's a clown. Well, no. He's and not, what do clowns do, Quentin? No, they no, smile, no, but they're crying. No, no. Well, <laughs> well, that's also a cliche, too. You just seem to be full of cliches here. No, he's not hiding tears, and he's not just making jokes. He's talking himself up because it's what he's doing. He at the end of the day, he thinks is impossible. And the only way he can do it is if he creates this front. I would also say that Steve Gordon Mm -hmm. is evidence enough Mm -hmm. that the psychic evidence of Arthur, uh, you know, to come after this is almost evidence enough of what his agenda is as Mm -hmm. a writer. Mm -hmm. I mean, I agree. Um, Winkler is playing it as full of confidence. He believes in himself more than anyone. It really is the, he gets derailed right away. It really is just the early stages of his career. But that's a time when nobody believes in him and nobody trusts him. So he naturally has to believe in himself. But God, for a decade, I was the only one who believed in me. Well, but you know what? He does have her because she Mm -hmm. believes in him enough that when he's like, oh, that's the restaurant, all the big stars eat there. And so we're going to eat there. Mm-hmm. And she knows they we, do, we don't have the money to do that. We yeah. eat there one night. We can't make our rent, basically, is yeah. what she's saying. And she looks at him and she sees his face and she's the first one to enable him. Yeah. Let's go eat there. Mm-hmm. And she, even though she knows that they can't, that's she, supportive. No, she's very similar to Grace. She's long she's suffering. Very similar, she's very similar to Grace, all right? Yeah. My, my well, first girlfriend yeah, back in the yeah, video archives sure. days. Yeah, actually. I mean, if you're going to make it, if you're uh, really going to make it, you have to believe in yourself more than anybody. Mm-hmm. You have to believe in yourself. When everyone is telling you, no, it's impossible, you have to you have to be passionate, even mm-hmm. when you don't feel the passion. You've got to remind people of passion. You've got to be persistent. You've got to walk into a dark tunnel mm-hmm. knowing that there's an exit and not turn around. Well, and you have to well, be positive well, constantly, what, which is what he is, even when it's false. One of the things that the movie does offer up and trying to get to his psyche, which I say is vaguely different from the Michael Dorsey character in Tootsie, even though he says enough things about feeling the character all the way down and everything, so he, he makes references to playing characterizations. All right. Uh, and naturally, he wants to rewrite the characterizations. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I see, I see this guy is sort of a street priest. <laughs> 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 Which is really funny. <laughs> um, but there is a distinction of where he's coming from as a performer. And it's not necessarily to be considered this great, serious, uh, old Vic style actor. Nor is it you know, the minutia of uh, playing different characters and different characterizations or understanding other people's humanity by playing other people's humanity. It's about the applause. Yeah. That's what he wants. literally the ovation of the people. It literally is the ovation of the people, the cheering crowd. That's what he wants. So when he, when he pretends to uh, be hurt in the football game, so they carry him off the stretcher, you know, for the sounds of the applause. Well, that might as well be a hit play as far as he's concerned. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Slow down, slow down. I want to hear the applause more. You know, they, they keep making it a point that that is, that is his fuel. That's what he's looking for, is to cheer the crowd. Um, he doesn't give a squirt. That's, for, why, that's, uh, why he, that's why he joins wrestling. And he doesn't give a squirt for, you know, King Lear, mm-hmm. legitimate acting, the art or any of that. No, that's, what he it's, wants it's to be, is, that's to be pissed on. That's yeah. to be made fodder for his own grandiose right. uh, uh, moments. To that <laughs> end, Carl Reiner even, like, shows himself on TV uh-huh. basically doing the same, yeah. which is, you know... 
clowning for the world and yeah. making them laugh because that is the most important thing. Mm. If you can get somebody to laugh when they're miserable in their life, then my God, you've saved the world. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's what Henry Winkler is doing. And I think a lot of this is about being an only child. Uh-huh. Otherwise, they wouldn't have that prologue at the very, very yeah. beginning. And by the way, we haven't mentioned, though, that um, Gene Sachs, who is very, very funny in the movie, who plays the uh, oh my God, the yeah. wrestling manager. Oh, he's, he's with fantastic. One hysterical Jewish gay joke about his son after another, after another, <laughs> after another. And they, at first they're groaning and then finally, you can't wait for the next one. <laughs> yeah. He hits it so many times that eventually it's funny. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I like how he's always yeah. got like his eyeglasses like up on his forehead. And he's especially great with Hervé Villachez, yeah, yeah. who is magnificent in the film, who is uh-huh. How, do, how does uh, Margold describe him? Titanic? Oh, um, 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 mighty. <laughs> mighty. And he is mighty in this movie. He's tough. He's got like a, a kind of uh, Douglas Fairbanks mustache. Well, again, he's yeah. kind of suave. Well, you have to remember, yeah. though. Let's, it, go, let's go scar some chicks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you have to remember that one and only was like, other than like his part in uh, 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 The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. He's a real actor in this. Completely. Yeah. He's a real actor. He's playing a real character. It's before he became the like the clown joke. Yeah. All right. That he became after he became successful with Fantasy Island and everything, doing singing songs on uh, the Dinosaur Show. Yeah. Uh, you know, this is back when he was like, we, we actually still kind of took him a little seriously, even though it's a comic performance, you kind of took him seriously as a performer and he, he delivers. Well, what I love about his comic performance is that it is a comic performance, but then at the right moments, he suddenly becomes serious. He becomes like normal, like yeah. normal, like uh, just he speaks on, you know, the act comes down. And it's really heartwarming. When well, he does. one of the funniest, mo- one of the funniest moments in the movie is when he, as uh, the actor, when he's talking to that secretary, he's on the other end yeah. of her desk, and he just starts banging her desk yeah. with his crotch. With goes, his little. Do you feel me? Do you feel me? You feel me? Huh? You feel me? You feel anything? You like it? You like it? You feel it? How's that? How's that? <laughs> I'm like watching you. Like what the fuck is going on? <laughs> well, then he goes, when he goes over and he starts hitting on her mother, and Polly Holiday. Yeah, that was great. Okay, now that was a moment in the theater when. It's just a two shot between him and her. And you just see his hand yeah. like start creeping, creeping over. over to her knee. The audience was pissing themselves laughing so much. Yeah. They were pissing themselves. It's a funny We're back and we're joined by the lovely Gala. Hey, Quentin. Hey, Roger. Hey. Okay, so this movie was kind of weird. <laughs> On the drive here, Roger's like, I don't think you're going to like this movie. And you know what? He's kind of right. Yeah, but my whatever, prediction was your prediction was you right. Would, you would only find Henry Winkler's performance annoying. Which is like half true. Whenever I listen to you guys discuss the movies, I always find myself liking them more than mm-hmm. I did when I watched them. I kind of went in expecting more wrestling. And like less of his. You thought it was a wrestling movie. I thought movie. it was a wrestling movie. So I kind of feel like I was predisposed. And you're right. I found him really annoying. Some people. It's like stir crazy thinking that it's a rodeo movie. Yes. <laughs> However, okay. Okay. I will say, I will say, look, uh, it's funny you're coming from that point of view. 
Because about midway through the movie, Roger goes, oh, my God, this is a wrestling movie now. (laughs) (laughs) We're opposites. Yeah. And and, and in fact, I only wish that the gorgeous George. Well, that's my that's my biggest problem with this movie ever since I was a kid. The way they do it in the script, it works very well. That that's the introduction of the character, and uh, it makes sense that it's like it's his first introduction, and then he becomes a star. He's not not a bullshit star. He's actually a star. Yeah. So in script wise, it makes sense, but for fun wise, I wish he could have been the lover for like twenty more minutes. Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen more matches with the lover, and I'd like to have seen him navigate the lover persona. All yeah. right, like and interviews, see him go on fifties talk shows and stuff. Yeah, because actually, the wrestling was my favorite part of the movie. Like that's when it actually really lit up for me mm-hmm. is when he got in the ring because anyone who's so into their craft when you mm. finally get to see them in the ring or on the stage it's yeah. exciting and that's like when he and i thought his outfit when he's like the lover leaving the arena was a magnificent yeah, yeah. i agree like the pimp outfit yeah the pimp outfit was really <laughs> awesome he also did a really good job playing i don't know if it was hitler but the kaiser he had the hitler mustache oh uh, himmler the kaiser, his name was himmler the himmler right, okay yeah, yeah, so yeah, they actually it, had a name his for name him. was himmler yeah i know the, the announcer yeah, it's it's written with an m <laughs> but we know what but where that m belongs it belongs with an l <laughs> i mean henry winkler walking around like with the hair and the the and prancing around on stage. it was Funny. Okay, actually, the best character of his though is the hypnotist doctor when he goes. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. There's a moment I I have to. Uh, That was actually my my biggest laugh. He takes his two fingers and he's like rolling them around. And he's able to do that. And then somebody's like, that's unfair. He's using hypnotism. Yeah. It's unfair. <laughs> and he's like, and he's dressed up like Sigmund Freud. He's yeah. got a Freud beard. That, well, that, those were my biggest laughs in and the movie, And that's the thing I is the wrestling is roaring. the best part. And part. I wish that there were, were more wrestling scenes or more scenes of him as his characters. Now, people online after watching this movie are no doubt going to recognize that Winkler's character is considered a Sigma male to all of you online people out Wh- there. Whatever that means. It is someone that is above a Chad. I'm sure young viewers will understand and resonate with my description of him. But you're speaking uh, some strange language. <laughs> above a Chad? <laughs> I bet you never thought you'd hear Quentin Tarantino say that one. Uh, but you know what? A I, hanging Chad? <laughs> it's something to do with the election in Florida. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I think Al Gore won. <laughs> I did not um, really like his character. And I was like, oh, God, this guy is so annoying. And like, oh, like, why is she still going out with him? And then he started to kind of win me over, actually, when he goes to have dinner with her family. And he starts doing the impressions. Mm -hmm. And he starts to win over her mom. Yeah, the mother likes it. And the mother really likes it. And her brother really likes it. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking, okay, this is like what this guy's got going for him. Okay, I got it. But like. But he finally meets the parents for the first time. He walks in the door. Dad! <laughs> Mom! <laughs> it sucks. And they're like these like completely sheltered white Midwestern people. It's like, this is just not done. Yeah, that that that, that kid who the, the brother. Me, yeah. Uh, uh, Dad! Call me Tom. <laughs> Tom and Mom. <laughs> Tom and Mom. <laughs> well, have, you, have you seen The World According to Garp? No. Okay, so Not yet. this is in many ways no, no, no. a character that was like laid out 
before we're I mean, to such a degree there that, are scenes to such a degree that it makes me think that maybe Henry Winkler should have played Garp. All right. No, and, seriously. And, 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 uh, well, there's a yeah. moment where no, the, when she discovers she's pregnant, the whole college section. Yeah. The college section. The whole college section could, could be straight out of the world according to Garp. Yeah. The fa- when she discovers she's pregnant and he's like, we're pregnant. And he gets all excited. Yeah. And he's listening to the baby. And the only thing and missing he wants to be, is he wants drawing to be, the baby on her stomach yeah, is the only yeah. thing missing. And he wants to be an actor the way Garp wants to be a writer. Yeah. And so I like, and Gretchen, my, my wife, Gala's mother, she's not a big fan of world according to Garp. Mm-hmm. And so I, she was like, Oh, what did you see? And I started explaining the movie and mm-hmm. well, it's with Henry Winkler and he's just this wild character and he wants to be an actor and everything. It's kind of like world according to Garp. She's like, Oh, that <laughs> 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 sounds awful. Okay. But it's like World it's, According to Garp if it wasn't filled with a, a tremendous amount of pretensions. Yeah, <laughs> world it's to Garp it's World According to Garp without pretension. That's yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah. It's it's funny World According to Garp. This movie evokes a lot of other movies that uh, that will come afterwards. One, you have Arthur for sure. Yeah. And then you have what we mentioned, The World According to Garp, yeah. which I really realized big time when we had our viewing of it. But also there's a, an Ed Wood quality to the oh, movie. Completely. The character could be almost be Ed Wood. Yeah. All right. In his own way. And especially with his little motley cast of characters yeah. that he carries around with him. And yeah. like I said, to even to this- The flunky performers that, that yeah. group around together. Even to the point that Kim Darby almost has the exact same scene, yeah. all right, that uh, Sarah Jessica Parker has when she talks about the weirdos hanging around him. Well, if you were if you were Henry Winkler, it would have been me and Jerry and Steve-O and- You guys everything. weren't that weird, all right? <laughs> I not weird enough. I would have had to. We're not like big the wrestler guy. Yeah. What was his name? <laughs> or Irve Villages. I granted, I am not Irve Villages. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of Irve Villages, I love Irve. Isn't he awesome? I mean, everyone knows I love Nick Knack. Nick Knack yeah. loves to watch. I love Nick Knack. Mm-hmm. And Irve Villages, when he appeared in the movie, I was I didn't know he was in it. Mm-hmm. I was so excited. I actually, oh my god, oh my god, it's Irve. I was just. He brought life to he's the kinda, movie. He's kind of sexy. Yeah. With the, with the mustache. I, with the, I mean, with I the, think so. I think he's awesome. With mm-hmm. the Errol Flynn mustache he's got. And also, the like Alan you, Swan how you guys mustache. were talking about, uh, I think his name, the, the character's name is Seltzer, the, like, his manager. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, but how he keeps on making those jokes, like yeah. the gay jokes about his, his son. His son. I mean, the short jokes to Irve, at first they're kind of not funny and then eventually they start to land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like as they become more friends, they get funnier and you, funnier. You realize that it's an affectation that he's doing with him mm-hmm. and that at first our natural instinct is, oh, don't make that joke. And mm-hmm. then you realize, no, that's how they show their love for each other. No, you actually get the impression that he doesn't have a problem with his son. His son <laughs> just gives him more material to bitch about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he just likes to talk about it. But yeah, hands down, Irve was the best part of the movie for me. I loved seeing him and I thought it was so funny and then Darby she does a really good job in this movie Mm -hmm. I actually somehow believe her when she loves him I don't know how because I Mm -hmm. found him really not lovable that in that way but I found their love for each other super believable like she Mm -hmm. suffers for him basically but she is going to suffer because what she wants is for him to be free to be himself because that is special she recognizes that and that he has to be allowed to do that and she's there to support him because she loves that free quality like i like that line which he's like isn't this great honey we're 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 living in a horrible apartment in new york and just complete squalor (laughs) everybody great who ever came to new york started off just like this isn't this wonderful and she's like yes it's it's very good squalor how long exactly does this normally last (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> my favorite scene with her. Yeah. yeah. My favorite scene with her is the scene on the phone, like when she's at work and her mom calls her mm-hmm. and she starts crying, like, Mom, we're fine. Like, well, and her boss comes over and it's like, is this a personal call? Because she can't make them. Yeah. And then eventually she's like, can I please just have some privacy? Uh-huh. And he's like, when a woman's crying, that's personal to me. Yeah. And he goes up and I love that scene. I like that guy too. Yeah, I like that guy. I like the he boss does a guy. really yeah, good yeah. performance. Now, my problem with the movie is actually involving Darby. The point where her character gives up on him and gets mad at him, I feel like is the wrong point in the movie, personally. When she throws him out of the house? When she throws him out of the house. Because, I mean... When you look on the TV, they're playing like Madison Square Garden. Yeah, they're doing, he has an they're opportunity doing well. He, to go play Madison Square Garden. So. Well, but the, 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 there's a reason for it, though. You know the reason? I'm well because he's lying to her. He's well, yeah, he's, he's saying the, he's going on the road, but but, he, but before before when they're together in the bedroom, she says, "If you leave again, I'm going to divorce you." But I don't understand why this is the point in the movie where she chooses to take that stand, where it's an actual opportunity that to go be at Madison Square Garden. Why not before I when it, it wasn't going well? Like, I that's think, just the one part that doesn't make sense. And I feel like it betrays her character in a way because she stood with him all this other time. That now when something is finally well, what? happening. I don't. Well, one, I think you're overthinking it a little bit. All right. Because they never mentioned Madison Square Garden beforehand. So that could have just happened. Mm-hmm. All right. That could have just happened. Uh, um, it's a TV offer. It definitely is a TV offer. But the thing about it is she had laid down the law. She goes, they go, if if you go off to do this, I divorce you. Boom. Mm-hmm. That's it. Now he doesn't want to get divorced. So, but, but you know, he's effectively lying. He's actually, he's set everything up for the day. Okay. See you at work. I'll, I'll yeah. see you when I come back. No, he's not coming back. But the moment where she does confront him, I think is a good moment, especially with his toothbrush. Like you forgot this yeah. because she knows him. She knows the true him inside that he is going to go off and do this. And mm-hmm. he's going to lie. I just feel like, like my lawyer, let me just go. Yeah. Isn't that it? Isn't that her sentiment to him? Yeah, and my lawyer will contact your lawyer or like whatever these people do. I I know you have to do what you have to do. I understand that. But I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm not going to be here. I can't do it anymore. Which is a lie. I have to go back home. And go back home to Iowa. Okay, but now, but here's the thing. Well, she is back home. All right. (laughs) They're living with with their parents. Um, They could spend 20 minutes more on that whole last third act. And if they spent more time on it, then there would be more nuance yeah. to to her character. But just in the moving quickly right along bullet point aspect mm-hmm. of it all, it fairly makes sense. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not going to have my mother call me up at work and cry anymore yeah. and feel sorry for me. I'm not going to do that. All right. So now they all move back to Iowa, mm-hmm. and then he starts doing a good job. You know, and mm-hmm. the parents are all are, are all happy. Then she gets the call that she's afraid of. And she goes, look, if you turn me around and spin my life upside down, I'm going to divorce you. I'm not going to be waiting for you for that. But she knows he's going to do it. And she confronts him on it. And he goes and does it anyway. Mm-hmm. He deserts his family. But then they show it's at Madison Square Garden. And then they show the family watching the match. And loving and it. And they saw, they, and you see the father for the first time actually responding to something Andy did. And, and then not only that, he's become a star. Not just a flaky guy in this wrestling thing. Gorgeous George was one of the most popular uh, uh, TV celebrities of the 50s. And he's supposed to be that guy. He's Mm -hmm. supposed to be Gorgeous George. So he literally becomes a star. So it makes sense that she shows up. (laughs) Yeah, that's my problem, though, is because she's loved him the entire movie. And she stood by him the entire movie. And then she's like, okay, 
okay, it's but she, over. But and then when Gull, he finally is coming from a stardom, woman who would stand by her man, but she no matter what. But she beats the shit out of him, all no, right? You no, know? I, know. I just think it just for me, it just happened at the wrong time. I feel like her character so far has stood by him the whole time. And so when finally given an opportunity to like do something great, I feel like she would have stood by him, but she doesn't. Well, in her own way, she does, though, because she acknowledges, look, I know you have to go. Yeah, you're Don't right. lie to me. Just go. I uh, rented mine on Amazon. It's available for anyone out there that wants to watch. But I also bought a VHS tape off of eBay for twelve ninety nine. Excellent. That's a great deal. It is a good deal. Why is this girl screaming? Why is this man terrified? Why is this couple under attack? Slithers. In the classic tradition of the creature from the Black Lagoon and the thing comes now. Slithers. Slithers. A horror so outrageous that no one believed. Slippers. Slippers. Rated PG. Okay, and now we're back for our third and final feature. Uh, in our uh, third triple feature spot is usually the exploitation-y item, and that is definitely the case with our third and final film, Slittus. A.K.A. Spawn, spawn of, of the Slittus. Yes. Spawn of Slittus. <laughs> I just refer to it because that's the the poster art, the newspaper ad, everything just... Um, it, everything the, about it when screams Slittus. When you yeah. called the Rolling Hills twin, they didn't say Spawn of Slittus. Yeah. They said Slittus plays tonight at 7.30. But it needs to be said that the creature in this is not Slithus. It's not its name. But it comes from the Slithus. Yes. Which is a certain kind of inorganic mud. It is a spawn of the Slithus. Yes. Okay, before we get into this whole thing, since you're going to start it off like that, <laughs> what is Slithus? Slithus is a semi-inorganic, kind of like scales or a shell, mm-hmm. a muck that uh, apparently within the reality of this movie yeah. becomes radioactive and from the Slithus comes a a radioactive induced spawn uh, or, or organisms yeah. yeah something that climbs out of that there's a lot of scientific mumbo jumbo in this movie that mm-hmm. somebody looks like they you know were looking up stuff mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they have an explanation for it it's okay, a, it's a way, traditional monster in that sense yeah no it's a very traditional monster that's the best thing about the movie yeah. all right is that it's a proper monster movie. they set up their rules and they stick to them Again, a beautiful media box, magnificent media box. Uh, uh, in fact, I will even go so far as to say that both Roger and myself watched a 35 millimeter print of Slittus, and we watched the media yeah. home video copy of Slittus, and dare we say we actually preferred the media home copy version. Uh, oh, so, so, and the horror section under S is Slittus. And on the back of the box, finally... Nature unleashes its revenge. From the pollution of our nuclear waste came the killer we couldn't destroy. Our worst nightmares come to life with terrifying scaly monster Slidus. Nominated for two awards by the Science Fiction Horror Academy. Warning. In order to protect yourself from this killer monster, it is strongly suggested that you are prepared with your Slidus survival kit. <laughs> More on the Slidus survival kit later. Yeah. That's a lot of hyperbole. Why don't you explain the story of Slittus to us? Well, uh, I'll do better. I Franklin Browner wrote a little tiny capsule review for it, so I'll just <laughs> okay. read his review in the voice of Margold. Okay. <laughs> Spawn of Slithus rises from the muck. I refer both to the eponymous sludge creature of the film and of the film itself. 
Created on an ambitious micro-budget, largely by below-the-line Hollywood professionals, more attention is given to the day-player talent than almost any film this reviewer can recall. The result is occasionally awful, but also occasionally masterful and naturalistic, with an almost unreasonable amount of depth afforded to the most minor of characters. Combine this with a seeming dedication to documenting the city of Venice Beach and the fashions of 1977, and we have a horror film with a kind of grit which recalls the early indie movement and street casting of post-Empire Hollywood. <laughs> That's my five, by far my favorite review of this. <laughs> because it's just you, all right? Just with a pompous voice. It's just me with a pompous voice. The, the secret to Franklin Branner is just me with a pompous, pompous voice. voice. Yeah. You're trying to hide behind William Margold, but the, William that, Margold is, and that uh, one, the true Roger came William out. William Margold right. is a straw man that stands before me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so there's a lot of scientific mumbo-jumbo about how the slittus came about. And I'm sure all of it makes sense. Yes, I'm sure. No, I'm sure it does, as a matter of fact. It's, it's, it's too dense, all right, to not make sense. It, it makes as much sense as, you know, them having ants that grow giant. Yes, exactly. So, But what the movie is, is a pretty decent little monster movie that takes place in Venice, California. Uh, and Venice is shot as well as it's ever been shot. Yeah, all right. I, 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 I just, I have to jump in and say... Yeah. I was freaking out while watching this movie because from the opening shot, which is a long, slow pan of the city of Venice Beach mm -hmm. in 1977, 1978. And there's a bit of a dissolve there. So it's able to actually cover one end of Venice to the other. This movie, From the beach to yeah, the canals. This movie is almost serves as a kind of document of the city at that time. There's, there's a point, a sequence in the movie where uh, when the four are coming together to fight mm -hmm. the yeah, monster, yeah. where they're wandering around Venice, and they're basically setting up a shot at every monument in Marina del Rey mm -hmm. and the Venice area. Well, not only and that, it even deals with Venice nightlife, Brennigan's, which was a big bar at the time. That they, is it actually one of has the, the turtle races. I have right? to tell you, the yeah. fact that they captured the turtle races, the audience watching the turtle races, mm -hmm. and this movie has no budget to recreate things. Mm -hmm. I think I wrote down at one point that uh, when I was uh, watching the movie, I was like, oh my God, Hollywood productions tend to insulate the reality of, mm -hmm. of they, they, they produce away all of the reality. This film didn't have that budget. And so they just went to Brennan's and shot Brennan's on like a Friday, Saturday yep. night. And it is a gift to anybody who wants to preserve fashion, uh, furniture design, you know, I couldn't, I can't, architecture. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's, it's so specific to the city of Venice that it practically almost qualifies as regional filmmaking. Yeah. It's not well shot in this sequence, but there's a scene where uh, the Dr. John character, who's like their, their, their expert guy that they got working <laughs> the with. The groovy him. nerd they have. Yeah, the, gro <laughs> the groovy morning DJ nerd that they yeah, have. Yeah. All right? <laughs> morning the, DJ. The, well, he has That's that. what he's, exactly what he's like. <laughs> yeah, he's like a, like, like, uh, did they cast a local DJ from around he, here? He played a student in Carrie. Oh, yeah, oh, he's. Yeah, he was in Carrie. Oh, actually, I remember him in Carrie. He, he was in the audience of Black Sunday. Den Dennis Fault is the, the actor who played uh, Dr. John. The two leads, the, the the boring lead guy and then his really groovy girlfriend, who I really like a lot. In the oh, film. yeah. She was like um, Kate Middleton like, looking. She was fantastic. Yeah, she's terrific. He shows up to, to talk about the Slittus, and they, they're in one of the most perfect 70s Marina Del Rey yeah. 
apartments I've ever seen in a movie. It may I not mean, have been dressed at all. I don't, th- <laughs> I don't think it, it, may, it looked too real. I don't think it was dressed at all. Yeah. I think it literally mm-hmm. is a situation where they just this crew member, this director, like, yeah. hey, let's go, let's go to, let's go to Sharon's apartment yeah. and shoot it there. Okay. Let's, let's go, go to Mimi Later's apartment. <laughs> yeah. Let's go to, let's, let's go to, she was the script supervisor. She was the script yeah. supervisor. <laughs> let's go to Billy's apartment and shoot that. Every book in the shelf, every record, every, every bead curtain. All right. Just uh, every pottery plant, every hanging, candle ha- hanging from a yarn, yeah, macra- a macrame, macrame <laughs> hanging thing. Yeah. All right. Shag carpets is just, Perfect. All right. The couch and the the designs yeah. on the couch are just, I mean, but that apartment in particular, it's like, oh man, if I was doing a movie in this era, I yeah. would just show this scene to the production manager and just say, production <laughs> designer, just do this, do yeah. this. Yeah. The monster aspect of it is that there's this uh, uh, creature named Slittus that has gotten some radioactivity from a leaking power plant nearby and has grown into a, a cross between um, a creature from the Black Lagoon and one of the humanoids from Humanoids of the Deep. He, the, he kind of sees fit squarely right in the middle. And he has some kind of sucker fish mouth like that yeah. sucks flesh right off the bone. Well, the thing, yeah, the thing that's interesting about Slittus, though. Spawn of Slittus. Is, uh, <laughs> we've heard you. <laughs> the thing that's interesting about Slittus is the idea that, okay, so he's, he is this gilly amphibian type of creature. That, that's to be sure. Slow moving out of water. But he's not just the amphibian fish that either the humanoids from the deep are or that the gill man is in, in uh, Rico Browning's uh, version of the creature. Uh, instead, there's a, every indication that he's made up of shit and scum. Yeah. He's actually kind of close to the smog monster. In Godzilla versus the Smog Monster, yeah, like uh, there kind is of a, a culture more than a creature. Yeah, there is a. I mean, there is, with all the slittest stuff in there that's been reanimated. There also is shit and fecal matter yeah, that has been reanimated. It and, falls out of and, him as and, he walks. And guts yeah. and the, this kind of fish, just garbage. Yeah, there is a garbage aspect to the creature. It's a smog monster. This creature is out there wiping out people in in Venice. And a smarmy guy who's like my least favorite character in the whole movie. All right. Uh, he's a journal. He's a journalist. Uh, a journalist professor. teacher in a high school. And he starts hearing about the, these murders happening and he starts putting two and two together. And then he starts trying to investigate them. And his lovely wife or is it girlfriend? Girlfriend. Girlfriend. His lovely girlfriend does not believe any of it. But they're shacking up. Yeah, they're shacking up. And she's just, she's in love with him. And so she's kind of rolling with it. She's like, oh, whatever. Well, the guy's not a terrible actor. He's not necessarily good. He's not necessarily bad. He's kind of a putz in the movie. But his girlfriend is wonderful. Yeah. She's the one who makes me believe that they stay together. Yeah. And well, not only that, though, even though I, I think he's kind of a putz, they're kind of sexy together. They're yeah. they're good together. But then he starts meeting these other characters that start becoming like, you know, surrogates for the characters in Jaws. There's the the Dr. John character that can figure out aspects about Slittus. Yeah, and then there's the, a, sort of the Quinn character. Yeah. The and then there's a Quinn character, this like black Jamaican guy. All right. He's yeah. got a fishing boat. And uh, so they're all going to team up together and, and, and put Slittus down. So that's the monster movie at hand. And it's pretty good. Yeah. As far as that's concerned. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to detailing Venice, it's very, very good. Where it becomes truly unique, which Roger's written review touches on it, it's got its 
main character. But there's a plethora, a kaleidoscope of, of, of secondary <laughs> characters yeah. that are all given a shocking amount of depth. A day player will show up and then just in the little bit of dialogue they have, just reveal a character trait or something important about their life. And it's it's not crammed in, but it's just like, oh, wow. Okay, now you left that character and the character was just a function for two seconds. But I kind of know more about that secondary character than I know about the lead character. I would almost say that I know more about the bit the day player characters in this movie than mm. I know about most characters in any other movie I've seen. I've I've frequently heard you have a complaint with characters in movies of like they're not they don't live any kind of life outside of the plot of this film and and you hate it. I always hear is, you talking about yeah, it. Yeah, that's look, that's true. And, and in this movie, Solidus, that was not gonna happen. According to uh Stephen Traxler, the director, come hell or high water, he was gonna make sure Slittus is that not that, guilty of that. Uh, <laughs> that that is happen. for sure. There's this great character, Bunky. Bunky, yeah. Who's this kind of Venice Beach wino, wino. wino. He's wino. a wino. He yeah. and this other guy. There's a wino and Preston. Yeah, Preston. And there's there's Preston these and two Bunky. winos, and they're at this little fishing boat that I remember was like yeah. uh, in the Venice canals and kind of washed ashore and all wrecked up. They're sitting there. They're getting drunk. One guy's kind of passed out and shit his pants. He's sitting there lamenting into the darkness alone. The horrors in Australia weren't any different than in Nam. And why would they be? They're just whores. It's the same everywhere. <laughs> and it's like, Jesus Christ. So what's the- that small bit of dialogue told me so much about the I didn't need that in this Spawn of Slithis movie. Yeah. And yet it's given to me. Okay, him doing obviously it was obviously in Vietnam. Him doing a rant about the horrors in Vietnam. That would be one thing. That that fits into the thing of <laughs> give the Nam bet some dialogue. To bring up Australia for just one line in a weird way suggests an entire life. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Because it's like, it's not shorthand for anything else. No, he's ranting and it's one part of a much larger story that we will never hear. <laughs> the scene at, at Brennan's pub, which is an Irish pub on Lincoln Boulevard in Venice. And mm. I believe it's still there, but yeah, still I, I, don't, there, yeah. I don't know if they still do turtle racing. But I think that was a thing of its time. All right. Yeah, you know, in the uh, 70s, 80s, and I think even into the 90s. No, I, I was actually at Brennan's as late as nine years ago. Really? Yeah, there was a, a, well, I had some friends, uh, Sarah Kelly used to like, uh, she lived in Venice and would go to Brendan's all the time. And so first of all, I'm like having an orgasm that they're showing turtle racing at Brendan's pub and Mm -hmm. that someone has documented this Mm -hmm. and documented it really well. And then these two secondary characters, we've never seen them before in the middle of the movie, this guy and this young lady leave and they drive in his little VW bug and they leave Brendan's and they proceed to have like, you know, a five, 10 minute, what feels like a 10 minute conversation (laughs) driving to, I think, Marina Del Rey to his boat. Yeah, exactly. He's like, you know, he's a a smoothie. He's a a lounge lizard guy. If he's not at Brendan's, he's at uh, uh, Tequila Willie's. If he's not at Tequila Willie's, he's at the Red Onion. Yeah. (laughs) 
and he's a you know it's a swing single type guy in the seventies. In the seventies, the, 70s. Pants, the yeah. everything. He's got, he's got everything except the right car. All right, he's in a shitty blue bug. But, all right, which actually looks cooler now than it did in nineteen seventy seven. It looks right. freaking cool in, in this. In fact, there was a moment when they were driving away and they have this whole dialogue scene uh-huh. that they're talking, and you were like, "This is like a Paul Thomas Anderson movie." It's exactly <laughs> like a, one. He's a Paul Thomas Anderson character. Completely. She's a Paul Thomas Anderson. Completely. Character. You were you yeah. nailed it when you said that. And then like you know they're talking. She's from Saskatchewan or something. Yeah, she's and, from like somewhere far away. No, it's like this long involved story about how she came to Los Angeles. Yeah, and and who she is and what her background is and why she's there. And she's only here for now to just to set things up. And she's going to go back home and then come back. We learned this yeah. whole thing. And about then he's her. like saying again, and like okay now. I saw you get who, carded who several was times. That, who was that girl you were with? Oh, no, that's Janet. That's my friend who I'm staying with. And who was that other girl you were with? Oh, well, no, that's Susan. And that was blah, 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 blah. He's like, okay, well, well, I saw you got carded a couple so of times. you well, must be of age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you look pretty young. And she's like, well, I'm, I, I, I. Nothing wrong I did with that, not, as long as you're not too We young. all have fake IDs back in Iowa. But uh, I am 18, although I don't look it, do I? He's like, no, you don't look it. But that makes me the dirty old man. It's like this amazing. <laughs> it's. Really PTA good. PTA conversation going on in that car. It, <laughs> it was like in every way, shape, and form. It's a Paul Thomas Anderson scene. All right, you know this. This entire section of the movie could have been ripped from the guts of uh, Licorice Pizza. It was. It, it was an incredible, like little. In sequence. fact, the lead in Licorice Pizza could be that girl. Now, <laughs> the the upside to this kind of low budget, almost street casting mm. feel is that uh, every now and then you get a bad actor. Mm-hmm. Like the uh, chief of police it, guy. He's terrible, yeah. Who is so bad that he does his best to bring the movie down. And I, I, and I, I, have, I, I don't think he's that. I, well, I, 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 I think he's that bad, but I don't think he brings the movie down. I saw fact, myself he, in him. Yeah, well, he's... <laughs> and so I was like... Because it's such a hammy performance. Yeah. It's, it's, it, you can't enjoy it. Now, we're talking about the lead guy who... Like I said, it's kind of a putz. He comes across as a putz. In fact, there's a there's more even than a, a putz. There's even a ridiculous. I don't think he's even that that bad, but he's a putz. But but there is what's well. The, I'm, I'm going to make my case for more than a putz in a moment. Okay, okay. There is actually a funny <laughs> sequence that we're like, what the fuck is going on here? <laughs> so it's like he's in school, and then this uh, is the moment. I'm glad you're bringing okay, it up because this is the moment. <laughs> yeah. So he has a couple of young kids come up to him. Hey. Mr. Blah, 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 whatever his, name, his teacher's name is. Wayne, Mr. Dr. Wayne. Hey, Mr. Wayne. All right. <laughs> you know, um, listen to this. There's, there's been a murder in Venice. And then so they play, she plays a transistor radio thing for him. And, they, and they, they're reporting the another, another murder in Venice. He's been interested in it. Yeah. He was like, oh, well, thanks a lot, girls. You know, uh, he kind, he, of, kind hey, of smirks. As a, yeah. And like, well, you know. You were mentioning these murders, and then then uh, you were talking about it. Then it shows up here, so I just thought you would be interested. Thought you'd want to hear. And he's just like, "Yeah, okay, thanks a lot, girls. All right, but it's like he's like a dick to them. Yeah, he's yeah, so well, and they walk away. And they're like, okay, I yeah, just no, thought they, you'd want to know. They literally walk away like, huh? What was all that about? And then like then he turns around and is like, you know, I think I'm going to investigate this. It doesn't give them any credit. And whatsoever. he goes into his obsession, which is investigating this creature. Yeah, yeah. So. I started thinking about it. We were talking about it. And I was like, well, there's only one answer. One, he's got the grooviest van. Mm-hmm. He's got the groovy 1978 oh, yeah, okay. oh, no, no, van. I, yeah, I got to set that up a little bit better. Though. Okay, set All it right. up. Okay. Set it up. Because it's like, we haven't seen where he drives or anything like that. So it's just like, Venice is a walking city. So they're usually walking from one place to the next place. But then finally, mid-movie, like deep, deep in the film, 
He's with his girlfriend and then they get in the car, but their car is this cool 70s van. It's like the mystery machine. Yeah, with a big (laughs) paint job and they open it up and it's wall-to-wall carpet, carpet, wood paneling. You can tell that there's a waterbed in there and it's it's a whole Crown International fucking thing is going on. I go, this is his car? And that was the key as to why he was kind of treating those students so badly is because he's banging his students in his van, in his groovy van. That's probably how he got Jeff uh, the the girl, his uh, yeah, girlfriend, his uh-huh. name, her name is Jeff, uh-huh. played excellently by Judy Motulski. That's probably how he scored her. No, no, no. You made he's no, got the groovy van. No, you made a you made a good case because it doesn't make any sense why he blows off the young girls except like like hey when I'm with fucking Jeff you stay away. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing, there is enough subtext for all the other characters that are reading this subtext into it is not out of place for the movie Slitus. Yeah, even the dog. Like, remember the guy, the, the guy who's, if that dog has, has come uh, through yeah. the screen oh, no, door. That guy's great. The guy who looks like Walter Hill. All right. Yeah, the Walter Hill character. Walter <laughs> Hill is in bed and the Honey, Slithis yeah. is eating the dogs outside and his and, wife and wakes and him and up. Burst through the screen door. And his wife is like, get up and check out. Something's in the house. He's like, oh, it's, this, it's a dog of yours. And we suddenly realize that's it. This guy has had this ongoing problem with this dog. Okay, okay, that's on point. Okay, so now even in that situation, him being bitchy about the wife's dog, that makes sense for the situation going on. But then when I say this textual stuff off point is also in there as well, because the wife goes, well, honey, look, put on a robe. (laughs) You don't have to get dressed completely. Just put on a robe. Have you ever seen me in the five years we've been married ever put on a robe? When you bought me that robe, it was a complete waste of money and my time. I will never wear that robe no matter what I do. I have gotten out of bed and put on my clothes every day for my entire life. I am not going to start wearing a robe. I will get dressed when I get out of bed. (laughs) I mean... That is a glimpse into their life. (laughs) And we were given that with everyone. With everyone. 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 And then it's just when he sees what Slittis has done. (laughs) To the screen door. To the screen door. Oh, that's it. (laughs) That's it. That's it. (laughs) The dog is going. (laughs) Oh, that's it, you damn dog. (laughs) It's awesome. It's awesome. So I was thinking, why this obsession with the background mm. and the depth of these characters? It's very welcome. But I started thinking <laughs> about Bill Clark. Uh-huh. Okay, so you've worked with Bill Clark. Yeah, yeah. I've worked with Bill Clark. Bill is uh, a first AD. Now, he's my man. Yeah, he's he's my man, too, as far as I'm concerned. He's He was amazing to mm. work with for me. Because, you know, we're doing this, like, teen movie, you know, like, it takes place in college. And yeah, he was your he was your uh, first AD on uh, first AD, uh, Rules of Attraction. Uh, Rules of Attraction. And um, for everybody playing the at home game. <laughs> <laughs> and so he um, he would basically, you know, I'm working with the actors and it's the assistant director's job to deal with the background. Mm-hmm. And so he would come to me and he'd say, OK, so here's what I've done. Uh, OK, those two girls in the background, they're in love with that guy. But that guy, he's really in love with her. She's going to be going over here because she likes that guy. And this is done. He'd worked out these complicated interdynamic relationships between these background mm-hmm. characters and he was maintaining it. Mm-hmm. So he had 
his own stuff going on in the background, his own stories that he was telling mm-hmm. in the background of the movie. And all of that, you know, it adds to the layer. And so I thought, okay, so the guy who made this movie, who wrote and directed this film, Stephen Traxler, is a production manager, he's a producer. He's somebody who probably cares yeah, yeah. deeply about the backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so I started thinking, well, this is like, if Bill Clark had gone mm-hmm. out and directed a movie, mm-hmm. he'd make damn sure everybody has a full story mm-hmm. and a complete story. And I think it's like that kind of dedication that one normally doesn't get with a director who's really just a director. I mean, these are people who are production managers and assistant directors. These are kind of below the line no, people no. bringing their their skills and talents to to this movie. And, then, no, they, and the things that they care about they, that they feel are normally deficient because they are deficient in other movies. They're truly doing on this movie, putting up front and center what is what they do on normal productions that is just hidden in the background. Yeah, exactly. But then, But then even above and beyond all that, just as far as a monster movie is concerned, sure. the whole idea of introducing you to victim characters that you get to know for 10 to 15 minutes yeah. and have a sense of them and they're fun and, and you and enjoy you care. them. You care. And you actually end. care when this little like shows up and like, you know, sucks their face off. Well, if there's one misstep in the movie, and I don't even know if it's a misstep because there's moments that I think are kind of brilliant. There was mm-hmm. one moment that is so goofy. It involves Bunky when he starts walking <laughs> and he's doing that long, like, he, like I'm going to go take a piss or whatever he's doing. And he starts walking. Oh, the Roger shot? And it's the Roger shot where I was just <laughs> like, oh my God, this shot, this shot is brilliant. And the music is brilliant. And it's like, it's like, that's like the music. And it's following him in this crazy long shot as he walks the down music, the canal. The music, the music is the Achilles heel of the film. All it's right. The Achilles heel of the film, but it works in that one moment. Mm-hmm. Now, when the movie begins, here, here's what I think happened is the composer got a hold of the movie and said, how am I going to balance this out? Mm-hmm. It's obviously a campy film. Really that opening with those two kids mm-hmm. and the music, like you don't know what kind mm-hmm. of movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. 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 They're throwing a Frisbee back and forth and running in slow, the little fat kid running in slow motion. Yeah, the, the, the Frisbee sound like... Uh, uh, like the, bio- the, the bionic sound. And you're watching and you're like, what the fuck is this? But then you also get the Brennan's pub and the guy, dry, yeah. the, the PTA moment. It's, it's this movie. I don't know. This was like a big feast, a big Slithis feast. Slithis could have a little bit more screen time. I will say that he's, he's off. He's off picture a little too much. The end could have been a little better. The fight between them and, and the slittus on the boat could have been a, just a little better if it was just a little longer. Just yeah, a, I agree. Just I a agree. little longer. We, we, we would like a little more. And I, and I will say that uh, there were some excellent car stunts from the uh, United Stunts of America. Yeah, no, like, look, you know, just 10 more minutes of slittus. I have a review for slittus in uh, Psychotronic Magazine, uh, issue number 41. Roger will be happy to know it's listed as Spawn of the Slimness. (laughs) (laughs) Under its correct title. Body parts are found by kids in Venice, California. And the radio says, the smell of fear hangs like a stench over the canal. The police are too stupid to realize that a bigger, meaner, uglier version of the creature from the Black Lagoon is responsible. But journalism teacher Wayne, Alan Blanchard, investigates. His young friend, Dr. John, figures out that the slimy radioactive Humanoid, in quotes, is the result of oil company experiments. 
Wayne's girlfriend, Jeff, and a jokingly muscular black diver named Christopher Columbus also help. <laughs> Chris calls Wayne things like, my main man, <laughs> and he mentions his crib. <laughs> Humanoids from the deep. And he mentions his, his crib in quotes. <laughs> Humanoids from the deep copy this low budget indie, especially the main bloody slow mo attack of a woman. In one scene, a stud picks up an 18 year old at a turtle race. But now, this is great. This is right up your alley, Roger. Homeless, alcoholic, and Nam vet characters are pretty believable. Yeah. But the crazy police lieutenant was a bad idea. <laughs> The cast remained unknown, but Robert Garmacchio was cinematographer of this and Eaten Alive. Oh. The same year. Mimi Leader was script supervisor, and Taxler went on to be a producer on John Woo's Windwalkers. Wow. <laughs> okay, so now, history-wise for Slittus. I saw Slittus when it came out. I saw it at the uh, Rolling Hills Twin on PCH. Yeah. And when I went to see it, I was given a yellow card that was a Slittus survival kit. Oh, there it is. So, yes. so it was a promotional. It was a promotional thing, not for the video, but, but for, for, the, yeah. for the feature film. Um, and so it was this little yellow card and it had a picture of Slittus and all this design that's on the, on the cover of the box was on the card. But then you turn the card over and it has a whole list of things that you need to do in order to survive a Slittus attack. Wow. Can you remember any of them? Because they're I, important to know. I think st stay away from stay away. Stay away from the canals yeah. all right, at midnight. <laughs> yeah. Nothing was so clever that has stayed in my mind. However, at the end of it is uh, you stand a better chance surviving a Slittus attack if Slittus knows you're a fan. So thus, it's suggested you should join the Slittus fan club. Well, that makes sense. And I joined the Slittus fan club. You did? Yes. So, okay. the, so somewhere on record, you're like in, on record. In 1978, well, I think is when it came out. Stephen Traxler has your yeah. name on file. In 1978, I, I never followed through with shit like this. But for whatever reason, I decided to follow through. <laughs> I sent some money and I, I sent away for, uh, to be a member of the Slittus fan club. And then a lot of time passed until finally something came in the mail. Nothing is cool. All as, the way from LA. Yeah, nothing. Yeah, all the way from Venice. <laughs> <laughs> all the way from Venice to Torrance. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't something cool like a like a Slittus fan club card or anything like that. But what it was was just an autographed picture of the Slittus. No. Oh. It was an autographed picture of the Slittus, and it was really cool because it was the actor who plays the Slittus, like, sewn in his suit, and then, obviously, the guys that, that came up with the suit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, so all these the hippie guys. Effects guy, yeah. yeah, so these hippie guys, like these Greg Nicotero-looking guys. Yeah, yeah, all right? yeah. <laughs> These Greg Nicotero hippie-looking guys, just all kind of posing with the Slittus, all right? And like, they're all smiling. They're all having a good time. So it was standing there in the middle, and goes, so from Slittus and all of his friends. <laughs> And it was this cool picture. Now, the reason I was looking for it and I don't have it, and I just remembered why I don't have it, is because we showed Slittus about six years ago or five years ago at the New Beverly. And so I gave them my my autographed picture and my Slittus survival card for them to track new ones. Oh, my God. So when we showed it at the New Beverly, we were actually giving away Slittus survival kits and we had the autographed picture of Slittus. Fantastic. 
That's kind of cool that they sent you back the. No, it was cool. I, I, I bet this was it a was fun even, movie to work on. It was. Even, I bet this was a fun it film was to even make. Cool to send away for it. I never follow through on something like this, and it wasn't that I loved the movie that much, but I, I was charmed enough to follow through, and then I was really I, I literally had that picture for forty fucking years. <laughs> <laughs> Your thoughts on Spawn of the Slithis. Okay, so the Slithis, it takes on organic material that steps in it. So this Slithis is part dog, part human, part fish. So that's kind of where it comes from, it's I guess. It's a little like the relic almost. Yeah, a little bit like was. the relic. It's like same zoological. And part garbage. Cryptozoological. And fecal matter. Yeah. Part, part whatever is in the Which he has now. no problem fingering through, it seems. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Wayne character. How long uh, is your VHS tape? Like how many 92 minutes? 92 minutes. Okay, so there are two versions of this movie on Amazon to rent. There is a 16 plus version at 87 minutes, and there is an unrated version at 91 minutes. Well, I've got so, a minute more than that. <laughs> so I watched the 16 plus version at 87 minutes. Oh, for oh no, okay, no, this is actually very interesting. Hold it, hold it okay. for a second. Okay, media home video was never the one to like. Yeah, oh no, no we'll get, get it down it exactly to the, right. We'll yeah. get it down to the quarter of a second. How right? long was that? I don't know. 75 minutes. Well, Jim Sheldon would be starting his clock at the beginning of each and every movie. Uh, he doesn't believe in he doesn't yeah, believe in any of that running time bullshit unless he actually times it himself. Yeah. All right, so on the front, it literally says on the front, running time ninety two minutes. However, on the cassette itself, it says eighty six minutes. Okay, Ooh. so I mean, I've, I've never seen that before. I've where the cassette seen, yeah, itself is different. is different than the box. That's yeah. bizarre. So I wonder. Very media. <laughs> I wonder which one we all saw. Like if we saw the same version, if we saw a different one. I saw the eighty-seven minute, sixteen plus version, mm. uh, because four minutes counts to me. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to a movie, so I'll always pick a shorter version. You can also watch this movie for free on YouTube, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty much the media home video cassette. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a code red Blu-ray available with a limited edition slipcover that was pretty cool looking for any of those fans of Slithis out there. Well, I'm a big code red fan. So yeah. like any cool movie that comes out in code red, I'm Yeah, totally and it was a really, really cool slipcover. So I really wanted more of the monster in the movie. I I feel like if you go into this movie expecting like you're just gonna get a straightforward monster movie, you're kind of gonna feel a little let down because it's not like you don't just get the Slithis all the time. Well, you know, here's a here's a weird part about that is I can imagine you feeling that while you're watching yes. the movie. But when the movie's over, the Slittus has well, made a really good impression. Yeah. And so I, I think back on it being a real fun monster and movie. I think back on it, yeah. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, from my perspective, if I had nothing but that 18-year-old girl and that guy in the VW bug going to his boat <laughs> with his little temple to himself that little altar yeah, to himself altar that to he himself. has with the the little because he's so into himself that he's got like a little candlelit <laughs> altar in there i could watch a whole movie about those characters well, directed by paul thomas anderson i could watch that movie i would really enjoy that movie actually that's like, i could watch licorice pizza directed by stephen Traxler. Uh, yeah that's okay now you're talking i'm in i'm there <laughs> that's the thing about the movie is that it's like if you go in expecting like Slithis or Spawn of Slithis, you're going to be a little let down maybe while you're watching it. 
But the best part about the movie are all of these weird characters. Mm-hmm. I, my top three favorite ones were the cop with a cold. The yeah, cop mm-hmm. with a cold. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because oh, that guy was great. Yeah. yeah. That guy's terrific. If I hadn't been working overtime because of this whole <laughs> murder. Th- <yeah>, murder thing. <laughs> because I watched this movie with my mom. I know everything about that cop. Yeah, I watched this movie with my mom. My mom was like, so like, did the Slithis give him a cold? I was like, I don't know. Like, no, it's just character. <laughs> yeah, it's just character. We, know, we just know about that guy. Yeah. Um... I actually wrote down, I liked the over-the-top police chief guy. Oh, God. I, but, but I don't know if I liked All him. credibility is, you were doing so good, Dallas. I don't remember. You were doing so good. I actually kind of enjoyed it because I just felt like it was He's so in his own movie. It was the, so over-the-top. The problem is- We've those, seen guys steal movies by doing scenes like that. We have, like we like have. The, the, the fat guy well, in yeah, the Romero movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wants to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. He's <laughs> trying to be that guy. Yeah, yeah. And I wish they had that guy. Uh, that guy is a genius. That guy's, yeah, <laughs> the guy from uh, The Crazies. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. he is amazing. Logic. <laughs> Science. They people, they die and they kill. And they get up and the people they they bite, they get up and kill. kill. The people they kill, get up and kill. (laughs) And then the other character really. Oh, God. (laughs) Logic. It must be logical. Must must be calm. Logic. (laughs) And then the other guy I really liked was the man who hates night robes. I just. Oh, that guy, yeah. the Walter Hill guy. I just yeah, the, Walter the Walter Hill. Hill guy was so funny because that's kind of when I started realizing, okay, the characters in this movie are just like over the top wild. It's going to be fun. And that's like, that was the guy. When I'm he gonna laugh, I'm gonna, every time, I'm going to laugh for the rest of my life just imagining him seeing the door. All right. <laughs> After complaining about the fucking oh. dog. And he goes, oh, that does it. Yeah, that does it. <laughs> the dog you is going. Over. over. Out of here. Tug is out of here. <laughs> And I'm so glad these auxiliary <laughs> characters exist because I find the main guy like really sleepy eyed and bumbling. Mm-hmm. I just I I don't really like him as a character. So to have all these colorful people like the street bums, mm-hmm. I love the guys that like the, the when they, he's trying to go get information for the guy that's like in a mirror room with like mm-hmm. a disco ball. And, oh, like, no, that's mirrors. Bunky. That's Bunky. That's Bunky. That's Bunky when mm-hmm. he's uh, who turns out he's Bunky's not homeless. Bunky has a little crash pad that he lives in. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Preston who's homeless. Yeah, Preston lives <laughs> in the boat. And, Why yeah, do we and, know and Bunky. Yeah, Bunky, well, that's. <laughs> We spent 15 minutes with them. Yeah. We actually know their situation. Bunky is Bunky is a vet. I mean, Bunky he gets money. A... He gets money from the VA, and he has okay. a little crash place. Yeah. Okay, guy... Bunky obviously has a passport. He went to Australia. Yeah. <laughs> the guys that he gets the information from to go find Bunky, I love those guys because they're just sitting around. They're like, "Well, yeah." That like, is like street casting, straight are... out of like a Sean Baker film. Mm-hmm. Like that is those three those are, those are Venice real, guys. Those are real Venice bombs. Yeah, yeah, those guys, and they start riffing on him. Yeah, they start riffing really. On his wardrobe, <laughs> like, and his hat, and they're like, they start making fun of him, and I get the feeling that oh, those the, are the, oh, oh, where's the Panama yeah, hat? He's, he's, trying, he's trying to blend in. He's trying to he's blend doing in a Beretta. Cool. And also, in leading up to that scene, like they do all of this kind of captured footage stuff of. You know, because the police think that it, that like it's Woodward's- not a monster. They think it's a cult killing because that was happening at yeah, the yeah, time yeah. in 78. There were all these like cults, you know, hunting people down. Yeah. And uh, so they think it's that. And so they have all this footage of them like gathering up, uh, a real cult footage leaders, yeah. of them gathering up like Moonies and uh, the and source people, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. people from the source, yeah. and which was in Venice well, at yeah, the time. Yeah. And then like just, I have to ask, like, what is up with movies from this time period having women named Jeff? Uh, women in cages. 
Oh, the Jennifer Gans yeah, character yeah. is named Jeff. Maybe it's, maybe this is like a a, a lost, forgotten female. Yeah, well, name. you know, just you know, like after I became famous, there was that whole wave of Quentins out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, so there was probably some good, famous female Jeff, you know, <laughs> in nineteen sixty two. I like this. I like this Jeff a lot more than the Jennifer Gans Jeff. So uh, this you, Jeff is amazing. Jeff she's is awesome. fantastic. Well, and you can also and she, she goes and. She does the best of making him better, all right? Yes. Because because he's a putz, but when he's with her, I like them more. In fact, even though I think the character of the guy is a putz, I can actually believe that maybe they could have been a couple in yeah, real yeah, life. Yeah. And I think that because that's of, thanks the, to her, though. Yeah, well, not, there's not, a, no thanks to him. Well, when he's with her, no, no, there's a, they have a sexy quality insofar as uh, uh, they're free to touch each other. And they, they 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 just they have these little signs of affection with each other that doesn't sound doesn't look like two actors who just got to know each other. You get the impression that they're a real couple. They share a comfortability in their uh, uh, in their physicality when they're with each other that actually again goes a long way to making a subtextual point about the yeah, character. Absolutely. The ending I thought was just stupid of Slithus. How they throw him. <sighs> yeah, how they but they throw him back in like no, okay, I, you have a bunch of people dead on your boat. And you're going to throw back the, your evidence it of was like, so, what It was happened. some bad logic. That uh, was just the one thing in the movie that just... No, I thought was that was... So no, I, no I, I, don't, I don't remember it jumping out to me as incredibly ridiculous at the Rolling Hills Twin when I saw it, or even when I saw it recently. But this time, for every reason you said, but also the idea, well, it's a water amphibian creature. <laughs> it's dying right now. <laughs> Maybe if you kick it in the fucking water, all right, where it's from, it'll come back to life. And guess what? <laughs> I didn't mind the gotcha ending, though. All right? I don't mind the gotcha ending. I don't care about I just the gotcha think ending. it's just, like, dumb that they kick him back in, like, after yeah. all of that. And by the way, I'm glad, I'm glad, the gotcha who got got, I'm glad it got got. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I got my VHS tape for $29. Excellent. Wow, good job. Yeah. Okay, everybody. Award time. Okay, so for best actor and best actress, I will put up for sure Henry Winkler. Henry uh, Winkler is my choice for best actor. For best actor. And look, I could give it to Margot Hemingway, but I really, really, really thought Kim Darby was sensational in, 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 in The One and Only. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give it to Kim Darby. I mean, I was actually going to give it to Jeff, uh, Judy Moltolsky. Wow. Because she actually made me believe that their relationship was soluble. <laughs> and I think that was her doing that entirely. Plus, I just I just loved her in the movie. I I, I, I cared when she fell out of that car, mm -hmm. which, by the way, that was a pretty darn good little stunt when that car like kind of flipped sideways. No, that was good, actually. Um, uh, I, I cared for her. I And so I... Uh, I I have no problem. Uh, uh, Judy Um, I'm going to have to agree with Roger for best actress for Jeff from. Um, okay. This is starting to seem like a. A colluding. Well, no, no, it started to seem disrespectful to Margot Hemingway. <laughs> no, it's not. It's not just. I love Margot Hemingway. Okay, okay, just I, just, well, I just. That like, needs to be said then. I, I, we, I don't want to be disrespectful. Like to, I've, I've made my case why I'm chosen. <laughs> I don't want to be disrespectful to Judy Motulski along the way. <laughs> Just, I just found that Judy there was a, I was hoping you were getting Marcus. So you're the one being disrespectful. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm not going to 
be disrespectful, though, to Chris Sarandon, because I am going to go with him for my best actor pick. Listen, actually, and I, w- I want to say that really, if this were like an Academy situation and we were really getting down to it, I, you'd have to, I'd have to take into consideration Margot Hemingway's like dedication and that entire rape okay, sequence, okay, okay, which is okay. really like, I mean, going to the mat and on I her, agree. and on her first film. Next. Okay. Best supporting actor, best supporting actress. Best supporting actor is a tough one for me because Hervé Villachez is fantastic, mm-hmm. I think, in The One and Only. Mm-hmm. And it's only incrementally, and it's only because Hervé Villachez is a confident, real actor in this movie, whereas uh, John Hatfield as Bunky is probably more of a, an amateur, a day player brought in. But the depth that he brings to his character and the feeling that he brings to his character... I I, I kind of got to go with John Hatfield. Okay, I'm gonna st- I'm gonna st- I'm gonna stand by my man John wherever you are. And I'm assuming uh, the best supporting actress is Meryl Hemingway. Yeah, Meryl Hemingway is, uh, and, and that was those two sequences. One, the defense mm-hmm. interrogation of her, and then also, and I can't remember who's talking to her, whether it's a nun or whoever. It's the nun in mm-hmm. that in that moment where she's talking outside at it's the a school, sis- it's a sister, at the yeah. school or mm-hmm. something, and she's. You can see her child mind trying to wrap her head around all the complex, horrible adult ideas that mm. are happening. And it's just, she's great in it. And then to yeah. watch, and then, you know, to, to see her go on into Star 80 after, like the connection between. Yeah, the, and personal best. It's, and those, yeah. yeah, it's, she's incredible in this film. I'm going to have to give Best Supporting Actor to Hervé Villachez because mm-hmm. yeah. thank you, Hervé, for lighting up the screen and lighting up the movie for me. And it's, your life. <laughs> and my life. I just, I love Hervé. I just, what can I say? I love Hervé. Yeah, do you feel it? Are you feeling it? Do you feel it? Do you feel it? Uh, do you feel that? <laughs> and then, of course, for Best Supporting Actress, I'm going to have to give it to Marielle Hemingway. Uh, she was just wonderful. Children can oftentimes be really annoying in movies. And her performance was, I mean, professional, dedicated, amazing. I think yeah, she, she did a great job. She was nominated for a Golden Globe. Yeah. 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 You know, and well-deserved nomination. Mm-hmm. I have to say, I also want to just give a little shout out, even though it's not always good, but there is one moment that Anne Bancroft does mm-hmm. where she's trying to convince um, Margot Hemingway to go ahead and mm-hmm. prosecute. Mm-hmm. She's trying to convince her to take the risk the public humiliation risk to mm-hmm. prosecute this this bastard. So he was like, yeah, well, what should I do? You should convict him for rape. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and there's in the courtroom, when she brings her conviction, you can tell that she's doing the movie because she believes in it. I actually think it's she's Chris powerful. Sarandon's best moment in the movie is when he's being interrogated by uh, Anne Bancroft because... I think the two actors vibe with each other. They they, they they connect. And then that makes that scene work Doing really some well. some kind of Meisner thing or something. <laughs> okay, so my... Okay, well, obviously, my best supporting actress would be the same as the rest of you. Uh, Marilyn Hemingway. She's, yeah. she's amazing. I am choosing Stephen J. Hogue, who played Rex, the, the swinger. All right? Oh, yeah! <laughs> Stephen J. Hogue. I didn't even know his name. He plays Re- He's the swinger. Uh, of course Ad- his Ad- name Ad- is Ad- Rex. Rex in Latin means the king. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course his name is Rex. All right, and he's like... <laughs> This wannabe Robert Blake, wannabe Robert Vajero, yeah. all right? But uh, his outfit is great. His Jufro is great. His tan leather jacket is great. Uh, his 
VW Bug is great. That guy is terrific. And it's very funny that he has this framed picture of himself oh, uh, right, yeah. set up there. But in a way, I think a case could be made that that's a cheap joke at his expense because it's still funny. You're going to laugh at it. But he's not a one joke character. He's not he's not this super vain, jokey kind of guy. He's not like the Dudley Moore character in of foul play yeah. kind of even though he's presented like that. His wardrobe is like that, but he's actually kind of. An interesting deep dude. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that belies the, the, the self joke of that photo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Now, here's the toughest one Best Director. A case can be made. All three movies are actually fairly well directed. They all yeah. three have their problems, but direction really isn't one of them. Mm-hmm. They're all three pretty well directed for exactly what they are. You know, I'm going to throw out, although Lipstick is my favorite, I would say Steven Traxler because you can just see the care that's put into the movie. Like, it's evident everywhere. The love. The love and the care. I almost, like, I thought for sure I would have, I'm a huge Lamont Johnson fan. Uh, almost, I'm almost such a Lamont Johnson fan that I wouldn't choose Lipstick to give him best director. There's other movies to give him best director. I thought I was going to pick Carl Reiner because I actually think this is one of the better directed of Carl Reiner's movies. But after everything we've just said about Slittis, I have to give it to Stephen Traxler. I was so close. I mean, Carl Reiner. I love Carl Reiner. Mm-hmm. But I was like, okay, Lamont Johnson. I mean, I was going to give it to Lamont Johnson. Mm-hmm. But frankly, after we've talked, Stephen Traxler, I'm kind of there also. I'm no, sort of I, like, it, you know what? Dollar for dollar. Pound for pound. Pound for pound. Dollar for dollar. Passion for passion. Stephen Traxler. Off the beaten Traxler. Yeah. <laughs> He was bringing laughing at my own joke. Kind of dimension. Don't worry, we're all laughing with you. I laughed within. (laughs) I wish I had laughed with him. Yeah, I would say Stephen Traxler. Yeah, it's yeah, it's despite some of the it's Stephen Traxler's show tonight. Uh, uh, I'm going to say best city award. No, for sure, Venice Beach, California, Mm -hmm. well represented in this film. And and also in lipstick. And in lipstick, you're right. Yeah, there's a. He lives in like basically he lives in. Um, he Angelica, lives in Dennis Hopper's house. <laughs> it, well, he actually lives in I think Angelica Houston's house. Oh, okay. Because Angelica Houston was married to I think a sculptor mm-hmm. who had this big art studio right there, and the angle that they have of his apartment looks right down into where that hotel and the coffee shop and everything mm-hmm. is now, and so. I think it's her like building. I mean, mm-hmm. her, it was she owned the entire building. Venice wins the day. Venice wins the day. Uh, best climax, absolutely lipstick. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Come, yeah. Best script supervision, Mimi later. Mimi later. <laughs> <laughs> and even considering that both lipstick, well, especially lipstick, had great production design, I still give it to Slittis for their yeah documentary production design their their service to humanity and to history Mm -hmm. what about best vhs box oh well that's well that's lipstick yeah 100 percent. that and these are three good vhs boxes all right but lipstick wins yeah i'm gonna give it to to lipstick with the gatefold i kind of like the title treatment on slithis there on the i love the title treatment of slithis like i love the orange but i yeah I reduced points for two separate running times. <laughs> yes, this is a huge black mark on their yes. uh, ability I would, to- uh, In fact, I would definitely say that uh, 
Paramount wins best company. All right. Uh, and I would never give that to Viacom. Yeah, normally. shut up. But, but in this case, in this case, Paramount uh, Paramount wins uh, a best video company. Yeah, I mean, serious shout out to whoever was doing art direction at the company at that time. Yeah, if you are still alive and you happen to be listening to this show and you were doing the art direction on uh, the lipstick box, on the the one and only box, the for little, Paramount Anything for Paramount Home Video. The Little Darlings box. On uh, their chiclet boxes. Yes. <laughs> We appreciate the effort to make a high quality product that you did, especially compared to Warner Brothers. And I think that brings us to the end of. I don't think you did picture. What? I don't think you did. I don't think you did best picture. Oh, we didn't do best picture. Oh, oh, my God. Thank you, Josh. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. Okay. The voice of God just came out I here know. and told us that we didn't do Best Picture. Best Picture. Hold <laughs> back. Beyond and back. You're not done yet. Okay. I will definitely say, despite all our love for Slittis, I actually think the one and only was the best movie. I would, you know, I would understand you saying that because this is. I also think kind of a personal film to you. This mm-hmm. is a movie you had like a really personal connection to. It I think I, it was not quite as much as you're making it, but yes. I'm turning this into a thing. Yeah, I know you are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and say, like, I want to say Spawn of Slithis, but the truth of the matter is I'm going to say Lipstick. Okay. I had like that moment in the end, the revenge, the delicious revenge moment. When you and I were to, we were howling and jumping in our seats off I, the couch. It was so exciting to watch. And like, that's what I expect from a movie. I got a lot out of uh, Spawn of Slithis and I got a lot out of the one and only. But really, at the end of the day, I think, you know, cohesively. And I've been thinking about it since we watched it even more so than the other ones. Oh, good. Contextually as one like, you know, tries to interpret a book or mm-hmm. or something like that. Thinking about like, what were they doing? What were they saying and why? Mm-hmm. And I thought about that more about Lipstick than any of the other films, even though it's just a revenge matic in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then also because we just did uh, Star 80, and yeah. though this takes place before Star 80, there's so many weird tangential connections between the two films that... Well, it was interesting. I'm going to be what, thinking about this one for a long time, well, I think. Well, you brought up Killer Fish because we watched Killer Fish as a background film because we wanted to see a movie Meryl Hemingway, mm-hmm. Margot Hemingway did shortly yeah. afterwards. So that movie was made for... Uh, Fawcett Majors Productions. Mm-hmm. So they started a, a, a film company together. So all of Farrah's early movies. And Lee Majors. Farrah yeah, Fawcett yeah, yeah, yeah. and Lee Majors. And all of Lee Majors' early movies during yeah. the time of uh, you know their, their TV success were all done for Fawcett Major Productions. I'm willing to bet that Farrah Fawcett was offered the role in Lipstick. I mean, her poster was everywhere at this point. Yeah, yeah, well, no, no, she was a superstar. She was like a superstar. She was the model, the look, okay, the she, hair, yeah. the body. She was the superstar. So she was offered, all right, uh, uh, I'm sure she was offered lipstick. But the thing is, the next movie Lamont Johnson would do would be her first big feature film, which would be Somebody Killed Her Husband. Right. The movie uh, uh, she did with uh, Jeff Bridges. So that was her next film. But then when Lee Majors is going to do Killer Fish... They cast Margot Hemingway. They had to think about the idea of Farrah playing that character. Yeah. I mean, it's even for their own company. I mean, Farrah's reading copies of the script. They had to consider it for a second. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they didn't go that way, but they had to consider it, you know. And But instead, Margot Hemingway ends up playing the character. That, that's, all, that's all kind of interesting to me. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, a big it is. circle. My best picture is lipstick. I mean, I've been thinking about that rape scene. It makes my hands sweat when I think about it. When my friends ask me for 
a revenge, like a rape revenge movie, I'm going to recommend them lipstick. How many times does that happen? You know what? You know what? <laughs> happens a lot. And you know what, Quentin? I actually have a vixen. She's a my rust- daughter. She's my daughter, Quentin. Okay. Well, well, no, no. Actually, I can believe her asking for it, but that, but you have these other friends who are asking you. I need a good rape revenge movie now. <laughs> you know, I actually inside of my film club, Quentin, I now have a vixen fan club. Oh, okay. Good from deal. people that have gone and found the vixen movie and are now Russ Meyer fans. So. Anything is possible, but I'm going to be recommending lipstick out of these three movies. When I think about it, lipstick's the one I'm going to tell people to watch. Good job. I'll give you a movie of the mind. Chris Sarandon playing the Alan Blanchard role in Sliss. How about that? Okay. That would have been great. Yeah. <laughs> I would have loved that actually. But keep, but keep, uh, 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 Jeff. Keep Jeff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You gotta keep Jeff. Gotta keep Jeff. Gotta keep Jeff. Keep everybody else. Just put Chris, Chris, you know. And add Herbe Villachez in there, and then you got the best movie ever. <laughs> Frankly, if we had just replaced the police chief with Herbe Villachez. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. It would have played okay, that much would, better. That would have been good. Okay, that would have been good. That would have been good. That actually might have been Herbe Villachez's best performance. <laughs> Tell me I'm a star. I want to hear it in French. Yeah, a star. That gets out of that too. <laughs> guys, I'm happy to tell you guys, uh, Brennan still does turtle races to this day. Wow. Boom. Josh uh, clearing is, up. Is, the voice is, of God is, has is, spoken. Is it, is it a special day? Uh, it's the first and third Thursday of every month. You can go tomorrow if you want it. The so. first and third <laughs> Thursday of every month, turtle racing. <laughs> okay, everybody. That's all for tonight. See you in Radioland. Be seeing you. Bye. The Video Archives podcast is hosted by Quentin Tarantino and Roger Avery and produced by Josh Richman and Gala Avery. Our engineer is Devin Torrey Bryant, and our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Natalie Muellam. Find out more about the show by heading to videoarchivespodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Video Archives and on Instagram at Video Archives Pod. Despite me sharing the same last name with this charity, I don't have any affiliation with it, besides the fact that the issue is very near and dear to my heart. Did you know that in the United States, 2.7 million children currently have a parent in prison, and it's estimated that 10 million children have experienced parental incarceration at some point in their lives? I was one of these kids, and as an adult, I am really grateful to be able to give back to Project Avery. Their mission is to build leadership from within by supporting community through programs such as mentoring and outdoor education, and also to remove the stigma surrounding having a parent that's incarcerated. You don't have to feel alone. If you know a kid who could use these resources or would like to donate money or time to the charity, please go to Project Avery, that's A-V-A-R-Y dot org, to check out what this amazing charity is all about. Again, that's projectavery.org. Thank you guys from the bottom of my heart.
Want to know what your favorite writers, directors, actors, and photographers are secretly interested in? Check out The Gala Show, where each week a guest of my choosing brings an entirely new topic to the mic, and it can be anything they want to discuss. The catch? They only have 30 minutes. Join me, your reporter on the beat, Gala Avery, every Thursday for a new discussion on The Gala Show, available wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 